This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 98. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lamariasa, and today, finally, after two months after we recorded it, you folks will finally be listening to our discussion of Banana Fish, the 1980s shoujo BL classic by Akimi Yoshida, and we have a great guest on to discuss the series with us, Banana Fish's biggest fan, Marion B., writer of the blog Otakushiro, she joins us to share her perspective on Banana Fish, her insights into the characters into the world the themes everything about it and we go into many different aspects of the series we discuss how you would classify the series we, dis- we discuss the context the series was made in all the political and social things that were going on all the influences Yoshida took from films of the time especially queer films like my own private Idaho and yeah there's just a lot we uh covered in this uh episode that i can't wait for you guys to listen to it was a really great discussion and i'm glad to have read banana fish because as you'll see in the discussion i came out of it like a huge fan of the story even though it is such a cruel story unforgiving to its fans and to its characters but there's just so much there to love there's it's such a story about love that it was hard not to love it so yeah yeah for sure uh banana fish was definitely something i really enjoyed reading myself and though I, I think this is one of those conversations where I, I, I don't think I contributed much, uh, I, I still had a lot of fun talking about Banana Fish uh, with Marion. And um, yeah, I, I think we're just going to head right into our discussion because uh, quite honestly, our discussion of Banana Fish by itself is already pretty long. And uh, with that being said, I know we still have like some news to talk about that I don't think we were able to cover on the last episode, but uh, I think we're just going to worry about that another time. And uh, yeah, I don't have a very good transition into this. Uh, Lum, do you have anything? <laughs> I got I to gotta tell you something. It's, it's a code. You got to remember this. Banana fish. All right, all right. You, you Find just, the banana fish. You, you, just, you just gave me a USB? Um, all right, I'm hooking up the USB, um, on my old, uh, 80s or 2010s computer, depending on what you watch or read, and, uh, oh no, I gotta listen to an entire podcast to get the secret-coded message. Well, I guess let's do that. Let's listen to our banana fish discussion. Find the truth. Find the truth. You know, sometimes in life I feel like that I'm directionless, alone, and isolated. And I feel like sometimes that, you know, maybe I should just give up. There's no escaping from my pain or my suffering. But, even though I get lost, I also oftentimes find myself 
because I think to myself. I think to myself about the idea of fate. And fate somehow brings me hope inside my heart. And fate has now somehow given me the reason to discuss the classic manga, Banana Fish. It truly is a perfect day to discuss Banana Fish. And we have the perfect guest on to do it with. We have invited on Marion B, who writes the blog Otako She Wrote and is the foremost Banana Fish fan and expert, having written extensively on the series on her blog and on Twitter with daily posts of uh, great, cute AG pics. Uh, Marion, thank you for coming on the show. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on because, like, definitely my awareness of Banana Fish and uh, just the omnipresence of the series, like, in my daily life has come from seeing you just post adorable pics of Ash and AG on Twitter every day. <laughs> and uh, that has definitely been one of the big encouraging reasons for me to finally read Banana Fish is to, to see this relationship and and see the story of these characters. And I want to thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, Marion, would you like to like explain it? You know, the, maybe you could put it best. Like, what is Banana Fish about? <laughs> can, 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 you tell, can you tell us what Banana Fish is in less than two sentences? You don't have to actually do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can tell you in two words. Absolute pain. <laughs> That's my fish. That's it. I, that's a good descriptor. That's fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the premise of Banana Fish is, you know, Ash Lynx, our main character, he is a, a survivor of uh, child prostitution who is like work his way up in the gang of the union course uh, specifically a division run in New York under Dino Golzine uh, and he's become like uh, head of his own gang he works under Golzine at the start of the story but he's always he's searching for a way out he's searching for an escape but he's also searching for like kind of he kind of stumbles across like an answer to some a mystery he wanted to solve like what happened to his brother a uh, griff in the Vietnam War that caused him to kind of lose his mind and kind of enter this comatose vegetative state. And at the beginning of the story, uh, he stumbles across someone who is like dying and mutters the words banana fish to him. And that sparks the investigation of him trying to figure out what banana fish is, what is Golzin's connection to it, what is uh, Grip's connection to it. Eventually, you know, that uh, leads him to cross paths with A.G., who has accompanied a photographer, eBay, from uh, Japan, you know, just to do a story on Ute Gangs of America. You know, they kind of hit it off, like, meeting in Ash's hangout, but, uh, you know, uh, Ash is attacked by a group run by uh, Arthur, who is like a rival to Ash, who wants to take over his spot as like the head gang leader in of the U gangs in NYC, and also like a pedophile Creek Marvin, who wants just wants to get his hands on Ash. 
So, and that ultimately uh, crosses Ash and Eiji's fates together, and uh, through the story, like, Eiji helps Ash, like, kind of emotionally grow by becoming, like, his, the first person where uh, Ash is allowed, kind of is, feels at ease around, is allowed to be a uh, kid around, and just be, like, a, uh, like allowed to express himself, like, truly and emotionally, and uh, show moments of vulnerability in a way he can't do with other people uh, because of, like, the status of those people, the situation he's in, and the fact that he's had to fight for his life all his life. And, you know, eventually the, the mystery of Banafish is discovered is that it's a mind-controlled drug that is being developed in partnership with the Union Corps, the U.S. and the U.S. government uh, for use in, you know, military operations uh, in South American countries and domestically just to control political opponents and uh, basically control global politics in a sense, you know, this is all taking place in the midst of the Cold War. And that's a very important thing. You know, there's huge historical basis for that. But, you know, basically after that mystery is revealed, the, the goal becomes to get the truth out to the public, to bring goals into justice and in doing so Ash will finally, you know, achieve his freedom. He'll be able to get out of this life that he so desperately wants to. And all along the way, you know, that's also what Aging wants. Aging wants Ash to find his happiness. Ash to, you know, stop being involved in this killing and just leave that life behind him. And so that's the that's the goal of the series. That's the struggle of the series. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the destination of the series. He does not find his freedom. But, uh... Thanks, Yoshida. <laughs> yeah, the the ending, I think, we'll definitely go into later down the line, but... Uh, just, oh, we better. No, we we are going definitely, but you know, <laughs> this is a special occasion because Banana Fish is also the first of the survey chosen series that our fans voted on in our uh, survey earlier this year. It took us half the year to get around to one, but we finally did, and I'm really glad we're starting off with this title because of all the uh, series that people voted for, Banana Fish was the one that I was really dying to get into, you know, just because, uh, I guess we'll go into our backgrounds of the series in just a little bit, but, you know, this is a series that has been on my radar for a long time, you know, I've seen it discussed a lot, read a lot of writing about it, long, so I kind of, you know, had an awareness of it long before I ever read it, and especially when the anime came out, the discourse on it really exploded, and that just increased, like, my awareness of it and uh, of like w what was it about both like the uh, the qualities people love about it and uh, some of the things that people have mixed feelings about which i think we'll probably get into as well though i definitely want to keep a lot of praise on everything there is to love about the series because it is such a fascinating series and one that definitely has enthralled me but i'm really interested in what our banana fish experts history with the series is marion uh, what is your background with Banana Fish? Like, how did you discover it? How did you get into it? And, like, what made you fall in love with the series? <laughs> oh, man. You know, at this point, I feel like <laughs> I've been haunted by this forever. In Banana Fish time, it could be a day, like a decade, a century. It's all the same. <laughs> I don't even remember anymore at this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair, yeah. But I definitely remember her. <laughs> I definitely remember that. As a teenager, I spent a lot of time in manga forums, especially in the classic shoujo section, and Banana Fish was absolutely one of the the titles that everyone mentioned that it was so good and you have to read it. 
Like it was banana fish, Mars. Please say my error. Like that was uh, Oran High School fruits basket. Like it, there was a list, and banana fish was there. So yeah, I mean those are classic formative shoujo. Yeah, and I've been so I've been aware of this since so long, and I definitely read it before the the anime was announced. So I've been like hype from this since that since back then and since the beginning of 2018 when they were releasing posters and reviews and everything they were doing to market the series in that godforsaken website <laughs> that i checked daily <laughs> <laughs> and it was i mean I think they do the same with. I mean, I think they did the same with the Promised Neverland and with Sarah's and Mine. So maybe it's like a Anoitamina thing, but they don't even put the 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 next episodes previews in the actual episode. They put it on Twitter on in a different date, and then they put on the website images for the previews. So you are definitely checking the website as soon as you finish the episode to like get a, a sneak peek of next week it's a good uh, strategy in terms of promotion to get fans like hungry to find out more about what's coming next and then drive up website traffic <laughs> yeah it's, it's cruel but it's good <laughs> <laughs> i think that you could uh, describe banana fish the series itself that way <laughs> like i i read the manga i know what happens but i was still like what happens next week and i <laughs> went to check <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of the fun of the adaptation. It's like, oh, when are they going to get to this? When are they going to get to oh, this? Yeah. yeah, and with adaptations, you can know what will make it. Like, what what will be left out? What will they put? How will they make it? So uh, there's still certain element of surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the Banana Fish anime is surprising. I watched uh, about the first 14 episodes, about the first half of it, and it feels like the story has basically been mostly retained they just truncated and streamlined like a few elements of it but like the core of the story is all kept i don't there isn't like entire arcs removed like there might be in some adaptations like for instance in uh uh ushio and torah another mappa adaptation like that had entire arcs cut out of that series uh you know arcs that you could not either you can miss like they they aren't essential to the plot which is why they took them out but like banana fish you know the entire plot is there it just moves really fast but it works because the manga you know is pretty fast-paced itself and it is very action focused in that latter half especially yeah i feel like the manga is like super frenetic and all over the place and so many things are happening (laughs) so fast so I never really had a problem with the pacing of the the show. I think it captures that feeling well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, th- I found it a compelling watch. Like uh, it was, I it was a very easy binge, and I'm definitely looking forward to watching the final ten episodes as well because that'll be interesting pacing. Because that'll be like about a volume and episode pacing. So I'm definitely curious about how that all is uh, handled in transition from page to screen. But 
yeah, I mean, you were, like, uh, very on top of, like, the anime. Like, you wrote, like, episode reviews for the first 13 episodes, uh, like, breaking down a lot of the content episodes and also, like, analyzing, like, the visual components of them, like, lighting choices, uh, framing choices. It was really Toro and great analytic work. And I'd highly recommend, like, anyone, like, wanting to read, like, a really deep analysis uh, of, like, the show to, like, check those writings out. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be honest, there's a big part of me. I mean, I'm clearly obsessed with Banana Fish, but <laughs> I did the the episode reviews like out of spy <laughs> because I was so frustrated with the Discord. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, part of me was frustrated or mm. disappointed or just not satisfied with what people were saying about it like i thought the anime was doing a lot of interesting things that people were overlooking it and spite <laughs> powered me through it so i it wasn't even hard like i just made this for those super long analysis because i was like very into it i was very interested in what they were doing and then I think they changed the opening and the ending on episode 14, maybe? Yeah, after the fight with Archer. Yeah, and that destroyed me because <laughs> they, made, they made reference to Ash dead and the Leopard. They got forsaken having Leopard in the snow and I was like, no, hell no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> so I oh, check out yeah. and I just kind of grow about rainbows and Ash and Eiji in episode 18 and I call it a day like, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so you never finished the show? I did. I did. Uh, I watched all episodes at least twice because I watched it live first with the Japanese broadcasting because I was that anxious to see how they were <laughs> going to do the episodes. And then I watched it on Amazon where this, when the subs were up. And the last episode was the one that I just like kind of like just skimmed through when Amazon was, I mean, when Amazon put the episode out because <laughs> I was not, I was so, I can't even describe how I felt when I went through it. I was like, fucking hell. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going through this again. <laughs> There's only so many times they can break your heart. It's like, no, please, yeah. I can't do, uh, endure this pain again. And it's even worse because the anime is very competent with what it does. And they made it more emotional in... <laughs> like Utsumi I know you're doing your job but please give me a break here <laughs> it was just so uh, the last episode and then I had mutuals that were like this part specifically broke my heart and they put that screenshot of Ash getting stuff and like come on are, are you serious and then they put that the, and then everyone was like angry at the, at the, the librarian because she she was like oh he's just sleeping and there should have been blood there if he, the, the dude was, like, stabbed or anything. And she was like, oh, no, she's sleeping. And so, I mean, basically, um, the episode was up and I was forced to, like, relive this that scene again and again and again because everyone was sad and everyone <laughs> just keep reliving the scene. Like, come on. Inundated with just, like, gifts and pictures of Ash's death scene over and over again. I have seen Ash... I have seen Ash smile so many freaking times. 
and I hate it. <laughs> well, I guess uh, I guess as someone who's only seen about the first episode of the anime, um, you know, I well, what what you what you guys are saying about the anime makes me feel really good about possibly maybe checking it out like with a friend here sometime soon because i did i did want to watch it here at some point so yeah if you're a masochist then uh you know can handle the ending <laughs> i don't know if banana fish is like an ideal anime to binge watch though because there's so much going on and it's so excessive with like the pain and i don't know i mean i never wing watch it i watch it week per week so i can't imagine how how it will be like to just consume the whole thing it's 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 a heavy series like i when i when i was reading it for the show here like i i could maybe read like half half a volume a day or so in some cases just because like it, it just it just gets so heavy in places but then there are other times where like you know i'll get to a an especially great volume and i'll be like oh man i really got to read what's coming up next that's really interesting because i definitely uh especially towards the end read multiple volumes in a row and with the anime i watched like te- like episodes 5 to 14 like in a marathon basically cuz i do find it like an engrossing read for just the pulp elements even if like I, I there were at times like had to stop watching or had to put the book down because there were things brought up that just was too much and I just like had to like like sit and like uh, kind of think and like not engage for it for a moment before I was ready to dive back in. But like in general, like the series is a really uh, compelling and like fast moving like action story. So like especially in those elements, like it's like a really great page turner. And, like, the volumes end on, like, great, like, cliffhangers where it's like, well, I gotta know what happens in the next volume, so I gotta pick that up and read it now, even though I plan to stop for the night and it's three in the morning. Yeah, like, that's definitely one of the the serious strength. Like, every, with, every, even with all the heavy stuff and even with all the not-so-great and problematic elements. Like, you're like, oh my god, this is so wrong, but you can put it down. You need to know what happened next. Like, what will Ash do next? And it's it's a very engrossing story. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And, yeah, I mean, Colton, do you have, like, any... Uh, Want to go into, like, maybe your experience reading Banana Fish? Like, uh, you know, did you have any knowledge of what the series was about before reading it and uh what did you how was your reading experience like in general um i guess i i guess i don't have like a lot to tell because uh banana fish is really it's it's not something that i i had a lot of I, i guess i knew the gist of it but like i knew very little about it like actually going into reading it for the show today so I mean, I think before then, the most I had known about Banana Fish would be from, like, the, the the multiple people I had seen, like, I'd seen tweet about it or whatnot, or just post about it in general. You know, I, I had never, like, I had never seen it in bookstores or whatnot, pro- probably due to the fact that I'm sure it was pretty hard to find at one point, you know, before the reprints. Mm. Yet, before the reprint, if you went... To look for it on Amazon, there were volumes that were between a hundred dollars and a thousand dollars. That's how rare yeah. it was. Oh, the second hand market is funny like that. <laughs> um, 
I I would never pay a thousand dollars for a single volume ever. Um, <laughs> but um, but no, yeah. I so I didn't really have a lot of knowledge about it going in, and uh, I guess just to kind of like, man, I don't know. I'm tr- I'm I'm trying to figure out how to describe my reading experience because I feel like. I feel like I it, it took a while for it to for it to really like kind of grab me. I I think it was around the point where it, uh, spoiler alert I guess where shorter Wong you know he eventually dies and they escape from uh, from Golzine the first time. I I think it was around that volume. I think it was volume six or so somewhere around there. I think that was around the point where I started getting really into it. Basically, I. I I was I was kind of lukewarm on it at first, but then like I started liking it more and more as I went on. Um, there were definitely sections of the stories that I thought were more engaging than others. Uh, I really like a lot of the back half of Banana Fish in particular, just because I feel like that's where that's where a lot of the action picks up. Because um, I feel like in the beginning of the series, it's a lot of like exposition and a lot of like strategizing a lot of like double crossing between different factions and whatnot a lot of like it's 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 almost like a game of chess like you're kind of watching the pieces kind of sort of like in motion almost you kind of you kind of you're kind of watching like uh everybody make their moves as to like how to get back at a certain faction and whatnot and no not not that i not that i thought that stuff was boring or anything uh far from it but um i don't know it was I I feel like that's really my my only complaint with Banana Fish is that I feel like there are times where like the exposition gets to be a little much and I feel like there's so much to get through at some points not 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 necessarily at the level of like Sugami Oba and like you know reading stuff like Death Note or Bakuman or whatnot but it it does get to a point where it's like okay I've I've read so much that like I I need to take like a break almost um but it it was still like interesting though like i i still had a good time reading this uh, despite its uh its heavy subject matter and uh d- despite some mixed feelings on certain aspects of the story and its characters like i think i came out of this pretty positive like i i think i really enjoyed the series and i would definitely I would definitely recommend it to other people, I think. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed the series, but it's interesting because I have very different, uh, I had a very different experience with the series than you did in terms of like what parts I enjoyed most and like when it grabbed me. Perhaps it can be attributed to the fact that, uh, I like playing chess. I played chess, uh, for many years. Uh, so I, I'm very into strategy, mind games, different factions kind of, uh, trying to manipulate one another and like kind of, uh, put out these strategies in order to enact their like final plans to bring everything all together and like doing so in like roundabout ways that aren't obvious at first but then when you see the end result you're like oh my god every step of the way this was so interesting and so clever but uh, it's because uh you know for me actually uh my favorite uh, part of the series was like that first half i really think that uh you know i i said before that the action uh, especially in the second half it is really fast paced and like uh fun to read but i wouldn't say i was as invested in the action as much as i was in the mystery and in the central relationship between ash and ag 
And for me, the back half of the series was where I was finding myself, you know, a little more detached from what was going on in the story because we had so many sequences of Ash just fighting people and... There were, I felt, a lot of kind of repetitive, like, parts of the story where it was like, you know, Ash gets captured, they have to break him out, then he gets, like, captured again and they have to break him out. And that, that, that does is, happen a lot, the yeah. The story structure <laughs> is, is very, uh, you know, I felt like, especially, you know, uh, in the stretch where... Ashes in prison in the mental institution is right after that is when Blanca comes into the story and forces Ash to once again go back into Goldstein's clutches. And I was like, wow, Ash was only out of the mental institution for like a, a volume and now he's back in Goldstein's hands again. <laughs> this happened a little quick to do this plot point all over again. He just can never <laughs> catch a goddamn break. <laughs> Personally, I like, I like, like, both sides like i like the mystery and the like the the chase game and i also like the you know just a good old-fashioned people shooting people like i enjoy that <laughs> thing i enjoy my action yeah <laughs> but it's all really good um, personally i think the last i mean i agree that the first half it's like the best part of banana fish and it has some highs when like in the middle but when fox is introduced to me it just goes downhill from there oh yeah fox is such an unnecessary character i really don't like fox like coming in to basically replace gozine as the final antagonist it's really unsatisfying like Thematically, the per what is the purpose? Like, he is a representation of the military-industrial complex that is perpetuating this this violence and this dr a drug trade in pursuit of just power. Is that what he's supposed to represent? I don't I don't really care about that. Like, I care about like the catharsis of Ash escaping from Golzine and like defeating Golzine. And what I really hate is that Golzine saves Ash's life from Fox. That sucked, man. No, <laughs> Golzine is irredeemable. There should not be at all a sympathetic moment for this character. This guy raped See, I didn't, I didn't find that sympathetic, though. But it's an it's a you could read that as a redemptive act that he saves Ash's life and then falls into the to the fire. Like you don't have any contemplation using on it to to like really recontextualize it otherwise. So just even presenting that as an open interpretation bothers me because he is a rapist he abused manipulated ash like he's a monster like go i really like gozine as a villain is some is a character like as a villain like he's absolutely hateable with no redeeming qualities and that's what makes him a really good villain to me an interesting villain to me and but i like i don't at all at all want the series to ever give the impression that he had any genuine love for ash because never never oh. Oh, no. See, I, I didn't. I'm I'm conflicted because I, I guess you could read it like that, but I don't know if I agree with that at all. Because I I thought that moment in particular, I thought that was more of a you know this guy has been after Ash you know this entire time constantly talking about how like he basically wants him for himself or whatnot, which is pretty gross and like 
I don't know. I took that more as, well, this guy obviously wants Ash so bad that I could see him pulling that kind of thing where it's like, the only one who's going to kill you is me because you're mine. Like, I... I don't that's know. I didn't necessarily do it, and that's that's true because Golzine does state uh, several points in the story that he won't let anyone but himself kill Ash. But it's just again, yeah. yeah I mean, I think I think both views are fair, and that's a problem. Like it shouldn't ever like even be a chance for you to think or to interpret that maybe he did love him or whatever. Exactly. Like, I have definitely seen people, I have definitely seen people watching the finale, and, and there's a moment when, I mean, it's not really a spoiler, so there's a moment where, when Dino falls, and he, like, connect eyes with Ash, and Ash is, like, shocked. And people are like, what is, what is going on here? Like, was Ash seem like feeling sympathetic towards him or whatever? And I don't think that that was it at all. But I also don't think there should be the chance for you to think that. And regarding Fox, imagine having a story where you have pedophiles that dedicate their lives to trafficking children and thinking you need more evil than that. Yeah. And then make Fox. Like, there was no need. We spent from the very beginning of the story wishing this fucker would just drop dead. And then you bring you bring another one and steal the spotlight from, from that? Like, you, you take that away from us? To what? For what? Yeah. He's just a random person that Golzine hires. And he's not interesting or, like... Uh, he doesn't stand out compared to previous villains. He's just like a person who has even less personal connection to Ash than Golzin is, and uh, is exactly the same other than the fact that he can fight, I guess. No, I mean, he, his whole thing is hurting Ash. Like, he spends... I mean, every time he talks, he slut shames Ash, and he reminds him of his past, and he even specifically violates, violates him because he knows, like... He was, I mean, he knows he's a survivor. That's exactly the reason why he raped him. Like, his entire thing is hurting Ash. And at that point, what was the need? Like, we have already been through so much. Leave him alone, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, exactly, we already yeah. had a character who, was, who wanted to make Ash suffer, and that was Golzi. We didn't need Fox as, like, an extension of that. And especially we didn't need him as a replacement for Golzi as the final antagonist. We need, like, has no no real personal connection with what's going on. Like, he just randomly takes over at the final volume. We just need... I mean, literally all we needed was Ash to finally get rid of Dino. Like, that was literally all we needed. It was so simple. And they couldn't even give him that. Yeah, I definitely found that very unsatisfying. Uh, it was... Yeah, for Colonel Fox, that was... You know, there's good action sequences in in those final volumes. I I do think, but the, the, it doesn't click with me because the antagonist just like feels so unnecessary. Yeah, I I can agree with that. But I mean, the high point, uh, you know, of the series to me, you know, in terms of both action and in terms of both like the the narrative emotional weight was like that fight with Arthur, where you know. Like, Ash leaves AG behind. He doesn't even tell he's going to go and do this death match with Arthur. 
You know, they they think it's going to be a one-on-one, but of course, Arthur, you know, being the cowardly uh, jerk he is, you know, has hired goons on the train, you know, and it's a, I love that action sequence, where Ash is fighting Arthur's guys on the train, make, working his way up to him, and then finally that big showdown on the bridge. It's just incredible. But what sells it, it's not just the action, what sells it is, like, the emotional power of, like, AG arrives at the scene, you know, he yells out to Ash, don't do it, but Ash, it's too late, Ash kills Arthur and it's like this just it's not a satisfying moment for Ash because AG sees him like do something that you know doesn't want AG to see him as and so it's like this big moment of heartbreak in a moment that should be uh, victory and that's so good that's like hurts so much and it's just such a perfect crescendo for this action sequence because in it's a defeat in victory because every you know it results in just everyone getting captured. It sets the stage for a lot of stuff in the second half. You know, it's it's such a good moment. Uh, that, to me, was, like, the real high point of the series to me. Like, just how all that came together. Like, I love that so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I agree that it was such a great moment. I have seen entire playlists being created, like, with those screenshots. And <laughs> they're also good, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> They're like, you know, the, all those 80s playlists with like, and all uh, this, I mean, this specific rock, 80s rock that's like melancholic and so full of scenes and so good. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Man, there's, there's so much to Banana Fish in terms of like what inspired it and what is drawing from in terms of the cultural and political moment because Yoshida you know was obviously inspired by all sorts of different forms of art especially a lot of queer films where she just found where she found the relationships fascinating and she definitely put that into banana fish but also it is so much a product of its time in terms of like the politic, uh, what politics is referencing, what things is referencing, obviously in the sense of mind control drugs. Uh, well, Banana Fish, you know, it, you can draw parallels to MK Ultra, the the uh, you know the mind control experiment engineered by the CIA between the fifties and seventies. And it's very clear that, you know, uh, Yoshida did a lot of research on this because there is not just the idea of this mind control drug that she references, like even in the sense of like making specific references to like things that happened, you know, in the MKUltra program. Like, uh, the care, the, the doctors in the series, Alexis and Abraham B- Dawson, the developers of Banana Fish, uh, I, in my research, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that they are both named after Harold Alexander Abramson, who was heavily involved in MK Ultra and wrote about the effect of LSD, uh, in psychotherapy and alcoholism, and, you know, he would, and, uh, he was also the administrator of the drug to one of the most famous victims of MK Ultra, Dr. Frank Olson, who has a story that's very uh, suspiciously similar to Abraham Dawson in that, you know, he was uh, someone who was involved in developing the drug. He ultimately refused to continue the experiments and wanted out. And so the CIA uh, drugged him with uh, the MK Ultra or the drug. And, and then that caused him to lose his mind. And then uh, he was imprinted in a mental institution under Alexander Abrahamson's watch and eventually committed suicide by jumping out the 10th floor of his hotel room. 
So that seemed like really similar to me to like uh, stuff that happened to Abram Dawson. You know, it's like he was the developer, but he ultimately wanted out. So they they used him as a test subject instead, uh, intended to basically use him as a human experiment until he killed himself. And then there's this whole moment where it seems like Dawson is going to like die by like falling out of like the elevator. Uh, and that to me seems, huh, is this, is this like a reference to like what happened to Frank Olsen, like him committing suicide, him falling from the hotel room. So there's a lot of stuff like that, that specific political references that are really interesting to me in the story of Banana Fish. Yeah, on, on that point, I remember reading, I don't remember where, I think it was a translation, but basically, it say that Yoshida was absolutely obsessed with this part of American history. Like, I think it was when she was a high schooler that she would go to the library and read all about it. Like, <laughs> people always say that, I mean, it's one of the things that people always say when they talk about Banana Fish. Like, wow, you can really see that Yoshida really, really researched a lot and as a fellow nerd with an obsession, I'm pretty sure that Yoshida was being a nerd with an <laughs> obsession, just having an outlet to put in all every every single thing she was obsessed with, which will explain why Banana Fish is like a little bit all over the place and he has so many things going on. Like it's clear that Yoshida was both fascinated and bewildered with certain parts of like let's say American culture. Yeah. And, and it's not just in Banana Fish. If you see her works, like, before it, she was already t and writing. I mean, she was already setting her her manga in the United States. And then she just takes it to another level with Banana Fish. And it was pretty interesting because in, according to um, Frederick L. Schott, in Japan, in the late 80s, there was a fascination with New York as like a place where everything that's wrong with like America was in New York, but there there was also like everything that's right, like the freedom uh, aspect that like the American freedom or whatever that was pers personif personified. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I forget the word. Like sometimes it happens that I want to say a word and I. Um, I can only remember it another language, so um, English is not my first language, so yeah, no problem, <laughs> no worries. So there was like the freedom that was represented by New York, and it just happens that Banana Fish was also there, so like the popularity conceded with this. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it from the Japanese side. Also from the American side, there's the mafia's control over the gay scene in New York. And I think in some aspects, Banana Fish is clearly a product of its time and it's clearly referencing real things that happen. But I think some things are done better than others. Like, for example, the, the control over the gay scene is referenced in that part when Ash and Max go to the gay club to get the pictures from the owner who's also like another pedophile and it just removed from this from the from this context is just so unfortunate because 
there's there's like the correlation like of the gay scene with the pedophiles i mean like there's that choice and there's i mean that possible interpretation and then there's also max who like gets harassed by by i mean in the gay club and yeah there's a conversation yeah there's a conversation they have there like that how women feel that i think it's important but it's just so unfortunate because to me that that moment with max kind of reminds me of every single dude i have seen that's like oh no a gay dude my my sexuality it's like i'm i'm in danger like like as if being gay is a disease and being touched by them will take away your sexuality or some shit yeah i don't feel banana fish has a great view of gay men uh in general queer men in general like even for as compelling and uh, beautiful as the ash and ag romance is like the explicit sexual relationships between them and banana fish are always portrayed in a negative light so it is very uh disheartening to see that yeah i feel like it's really limited by like the heteronormativity and the conservatism of the time and yeah for sure yeah. Yeah. On that element, I mean, it's true that in real life, the gay clouds were often used like as a cover up for the mafia, for the the shady businesses, and like they did prostitute um, young boys in there. Like that. That's a thing that happened until the police raided those places. I think it was in the mid eighties. So. Yeah, in Banana Fish, it starts in the mid-80s, so it's not, like, 100%, like, accurate, but whatever. And I just, I mean, in that moment, obviously, the LGBT community was not cool with this, but, like, no one cared about them, so the voices in the real life were silenced in in this in this matter. And what's worse is that the the gay men as predators is such a common and dangerous stereotype and in the manga because the way it's presented in the manga i think unfortunately it works to like give you the chance to think about these stereotypes and it effectively silences the lgbt community that was not cool with this again because there's not a single mention of then outside of the context of the the pedophiles the club and some gay dudes touch max and max is like super and i wouldn't say gross out but he's like super i I don't even know how to describe it all homosexuality in banana fish is presented in the forms of rape or sexual assault. There's never a positive consensual uh, sexual experience between men and banana fish at all. And so it's like not... It is even... Man, it's it's not a great work for, you know, queer readers looking for that kind of thing. It's, it's And I feel it reflects... Which is so... Sorry. Which is so interesting because, like, I I feel like that was something I had heard about Fanata Fish years ago was or I don't remember exactly but I I feel like I have a memory of like seeing somebody tweet about Banana Fish and how like 
you know, and, and how it was a good series because of like its representation. And now, now, now that I've actually read it, I'm, you know, I, 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 I can't say I necessarily agree with that. Unfortunately. Well, it's a complicated yeah, I mean, issue I mean, because. Sandy... <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Mary. I mean, something you you have to consider is that we don't have a lot of representation out there and that's also was, true I mean, yeah yeah this came out in the 80s and it arrived over here in the late 90s and early 2000s so it was so for some people this was like a holy grail or something and like when you don't have a lot you work with you work with what you have and uh i would unfortunately yes yeah i w- even today, I wouldn't be like, you know, the banana fish is like perfect with for a presentation or anything. But because you can read it and still like see a lot of value in Ajinayu's relationship, I know that there's pe- there are people who still will recommend it for, I mean, because it has them, but you wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't do it without a lot of content warnings. A lot, a lot of caveats. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you need to know what you're getting into. But, like, it is important, like, for the late 90s when this Banana Fish was first being brought over and published in English, like, there was such a dirt of, like, queer love stories. And so even with all this background of gay characters frequently being portrayed as pedophiles and rapists, like, the pure romance between Ash and Eiji was compelling and something to latch onto. And I think there's still a lot of value in that relationship and how those characters, you know, uh, interact with each other, how they help each other grow emotionally and like find, they kind of find a place in the world, find themselves in each other. And that is really romantic and it's really empowering for a lot of people who maybe have who felt alone, felt like there's no one who could understand him and maybe have been in bad situations that there that you can have like the story about two people like growing and overcoming pain together. That's powerful as as a queer story. Even if, you know, I think we need I guess if we're gonna bring in the author's perspective in it, like it's clear that Akimi Yoshida did not see this as a queer love story she was not intending to write she did not intend to to write this with the takeaway that well she obviously was inspired by queer media but she was not interested in writing like actual gay characters like in a relationship that is supposed to be you know two gay men in love like, I think that it's undeniably romantic. I think that she did intend it to be romantic. And, like, even at the end of the manga in Garden of Light, you know, you have that conversation between Akira and Sing, where Akira asks, Are they, were they lovers? And Sing is like, oh, it wasn't sexual or anything like that. But, you know, he does say that, you know, is beyond that. Like, they were, like, soulmates, basically. So, like, there, it's still... You know, it's an asexual romantic relationship. Like, that's still, like, valuable. But, I, again, it's like... Uh, in this interview that uh, was, tra- like, excerpts of it that has been translated by uh, this blog, Brick Me, I-, I discovered during my research, Yoshida is kind of, uh, is asked, like, why is the ending the way it is? Like, why or Ash and Eiji, like, not happy together? Like, it goes into something about the ending, but, like, a comment that stood out to me was that, like, uh, Yoshida's editor mentions that, you know, Apparently, at one point, uh, Yoshida was thinking about, like, 
having a moment where Ash has sex with a woman in the story, but Yoshida's editor advised her against it. But, like, Yoshida's thought process about this was, you know, she wanted there to be a scene between uh, I, I Ash will, and a woman. I will not take it too seriously. I remember that it was a lot of discourse back then uh, among people who, like, understood Japanese and there seemed to be like a consensus that it was I mean take it with a grain of salt I don't know like I don't know how accurate that is I mean there were people that were saying like it was the other way around or they were like joking about like putting that in and and someone say like uh, something like oh so you real so you had to put that in because otherwise they will be like oh no Ash is too gay or whatever like it, it, look to be blunt it's a mess yeah. So I, I, like I, I don't I know Yoshida. I wouldn't go there. There's probably nuances. Is it is it is it kind of like one? Of, is it kind of like the thing from JoJo where like you you have that little you have that thing kind of like roaming around the internet where it's like oh well Lisa Lisa was supposed to fight cars or whatever but uh, Araki's editor said not to do that or whatever kind of like kind of like in that category of like rumor or so I guess. Well, it's like, it's, I don't know how accurate this translation that this person did from this guidebook. So there's probably maybe even nuances, context here that is missing. So again, okay. again I, I don't mean to say that you should definitely believe this is like 100% fact. There might be, this discussion might have been happened joking way. So just moving on from that. But basically, I do feel that Yoshida was not interested in writing gay characters like i i do think this was a love story but like she, she like she has also said in interview she doesn't personally see it as a boy's love because she has this specific understanding that like uh, a boy's love series has like a sexual undercurrent and she didn't write that into the series and i think that's like that's just a different interpretation of what it means so what a what constitutes a boys love series? Personally, I would consider Banana Fish boys love because it is a love story between two men. Like even, and I don't think you need that sexual element of that there uh, for it to be considered a boys love series. Uh, kind of like how Erica, like in her "Is Yuri Queer" uh, article, wrote that you know uh, her her idea of Yuri is that. You know, Yuri is, like, lesbian content without, like, lesbian representation. I think boys love can be argued the same way. Like, it is it is gay content, but it's not necessarily gay representation. Oh, oh boy. Okay. I have a very long run about that. Go ahead. You know, just... <laughs> um, I mean, I will agree that Yoshida wasn't, like, trying to write gay identity so uh, into her manga like there's a, it's definitely there but it, i don't i wouldn't say that she was like too concerned or maybe she wanted to but she had like certain limitations in her perspective but why what i'm sure she absolutely wanted to do was write write about soulmates who happen to be boys you know mm -hmm. just like her beloved Mina, midnight cowboy but <laughs> going i mean the boil up thing. <sighs> there was so much discourse about this. Mm -hmm. I can only there's imagine. No yeah. There's no doubt that banana fish inspire boy love. And a lot of people, I mean, I don't know if a lot, but there, there are people who refer to it as proto boy love because at the time banana fish came out, the 
the level didn't exist as we that know it. That is true. That is something to keep. That in that I think that it was born around the early early nineties, and Banana Fish came out in nineteen eighty five. Either way, it it was there was so much discourse. I I usually say it's shoujo and I call it a day, but like honestly, I we don't even agree with what Boilov is. Like, this is a discussion that has been going on for so long. Like, if you goggle, you will definitely see people talking about what... If this banana fish boil up, like, Yoshida herself has talked about it. And if you if you stumble a- across some, like, light journals or whatever of banana fish, you will find people that are so vehement and denying that now this is not a boil up, it should not be boil up. And <laughs> it's such a gray area. I think, because I mean, the more people discuss about it, the more you realize that we are, we don't even agree with what boil up is, and you have people with an academic interest that look at at this with certain perspective, and you have people that go through go through this from the perspective of the magazine and the mangaka's career and Yoshida has basically always writing for shoujo magazines I think she writes later for a Jose magazine but most of her career is on shoujo magazines and you have how close boy love and shoujo are to each other like it's the lines get blurry there and then you have like a you have absolutely heteronormativity boy love that's definitely there for you to project like the role of a woman and a man and not see them as gay people but you have also new different works like go for it nakamura or i hear the sunspot or what did you eat yesterday that are a lot more authentic in what they with the kind of character they write, like they're basically just gay people existing, you know, and <clears throat> and so it's like there's what's the connection with that and the <clears throat> sorry with that and the more heteronormative boil up, like it's just the magazines, right? And um, then you have the the negative feelings towards the label that comes either from from the knowledge of like its worst tendencies like romanticizing rape and that kind of stuff or the belief that boil up is just like porn for women or whatever or if or if <sighs> i know i'm so tired <laughs> <laughs> so you have preconceived so you have a lot of preconceived notions with the label and then you have like the definition of it's just writing for women by women but that's also show you so it's it's a it's complicated it's a complicated discussion and a lot of things are not connecting like we are not connecting here and I remember seeing a picture of the Japanese poster of the movie Call Me By Your Name and it was marked as boil up. Like it has a big boil up tag in the poster. And I don't think, I mean, I think we can all agree that there's no, there's no one in the West that will look at an American movie that has gay characters and be like, yeah, this is definitely boil up. Like no one thinks about <laughs> these movies like that, right? 
<laughs> so, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you have people that just don't want like all this baggage to be associated with series that were not published on Boil of magazines. Like not a lot and now a lot of people don't want banana fish to be called Boil Up because it creates certain expectations and some of those expectations are very negative and they just don't want banana fish to be associated with that like the romanticized rape which is just not something that happens in banana fish like on the contrary and then you have people who see and appreciate banana fish as a story that just like happens to have uh, a gay romance that they connect with and I personally I mean that's where I can see value i mean i don't have super strong opinions on like how things should be labeled because i'm personally someone who has never liked to fixate on labels in general like i think i think labels should be guys not constrictive boxes where everything should be forced into like very neatly and the funny thing about banana fish is that some people say, okay, this is shoujo. Others will say, no, this is shonen. It has elements <laughs> from shonen. And others, and others will tell you, no, it's seinen. I distinctly remember in a in an interview that Banana Fish did to like Japanese queer fans, and one of them yeah, was on any like, fan. yeah, this seinen word. And I was like, what? Wait, <laughs> wait, it was it's not okay. Whatever. So. <laughs> It's clearly a big gray area, and it's obvious that Banana Fish has a big crossover appeal. So, like, just why not embrace that? I think exactly. I I definitely agree. Like that that was a, I forgot to mention earlier. That was something that like really kind of caught me off guard about Banana Fish when I first started reading it. Was that it is, um, and I and I and I I full heartedly agree about you know, not getting too obsessed about labels, which is something I feel like a lot of manga fans at one point or another accidentally get ensnared in. But uh, yeah, it uh, it also doesn't help that like, I haven't read a lot of shoujo manga myself. So like, I this I whatever preconceived notions I have about like how show how shoujo manga should be like presented and like what tropes what very little tropes I'm like aware of that come with that kind of manga. Like with all that knowledge going into Banana Fish, I it was um it was very jarring to say the least. Like there were times where I did not believe this ran in a, in a shojo magazine at all. Well, it did because it's 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 very unlike a lot of what people expect from a shojo manga. Yeah, and I this I I you know I really agree with uh, Marion's thoughts and like people get too hung up on labels. You know, I I personally think there is a case to consider. Uh, Banana Fish BL under, you know, certain definitions, but definitely I wouldn't suggest it to be a strict definition because these these labels are so malleable and flexible and are have different connotations and meanings depending on who you ask. When it comes to, the you know, considering Banana Fish Shoujo, you know, I feel like with certain labels, you know, it's sometimes it's easier to, like, just consider, like, who is the audience of the series, but also like what magazine the series ran in. Cause like the magazine, like the, like the audience that is, 
the series is being targeted to that i think that you can give you a sense of like like who is the story being written for and banana fish was published in bisatsu shoujo comics you know the same magazine that pop has published series over the years like basara by yumi tamura like a historical fantasy epic it's published series like dengeki daisy uh series like hot gimmick it's all sorts of variety of different series that are all very distinctly different have very distinct art styles and so there's so much depth in shoujo manga. Like, there is no limits to what shoujo manga could be by any preconceived notions. So I would definitely agree that Banana Fish, you know, uh, can't, is shoujo because, like, it was, it was written uh, for uh, female audiences and it ran in a shoujo magazine. But, like, you know, that doesn't mean to say that it isn't, cannot be enjoyed by people like outside the intended audience. Like, obviously, uh, pieces of media, pieces of fiction have broad appeal that a lot of people can latch onto and enjoy. And I feel like a lot of this idea of trying to like reconfigure like what genre a piece of work is in, it comes from this stance of think, of trying to a feeling like the genre it is in isn't legitimate enough for them to for them to enjoy it as that, so they have to make it something else. Like I've I've had this oh, conversation yeah. uh, about Death Note before with people. Like I had this conversation with art friends when I was at art school. People thought people would say that oh no, Death Note isn't shonen. It is seinen. Uh, because it, it's more mature than uh, the typical Shonen Jump series, and it debuted within a week of Gintama, another Shonen series back in O Street. You know, it's it's a Shonen Jump series. Bo 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 was in the same magazine as Death Note when it was run. Oh yeah, and then you know, uh, I'm sure we mentioned it on the show before, but like I constantly see people say that same thing about Hunter Hunter all the time. Just be just because Hunter Hunter is capable of like delving into really mature subject matter every once in a while that people are like that's not shonen it's seinen shonen is for kids like i'm not a kid i don't like kids stuff so ultimately (laughs) like i do feel it's like this idea like oh i'm an adult i don't want to i can't enjoy shonen because that's for kids and then with shoujo there's this extra gendered sexist view that oh like i am a uh adult man i don't i can't enjoy shoujo manga which is for girls so it, it can't be shoujo it has to be seinen or otherwise no, it is. It's different from your other show, Joe. It's a. It's a parody. It's a subversion. Like I have had this conversation <laughs> with people with Oron High School Host Club before, where people saying, "Oh no, it's a parody of show." And I'm like, "You have clearly uh, not read Shoujo manga." Uh, I'm so exhausted. Yeah, it I'm is. It's an exhausting discourse. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's yeah, let's I mean, let's I- let's wrap it up with this. Labels are bullshit. Yeah, I would agree that, with that. That's, that's pretty much what you should take out of this conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, shoujo, yosei, seinen, whatever. At the end of the day, they are demographic labels. They are they are there for the marketing. They are there to like separate magazines and not make everything. I mean, not put everything into a single place. It's like they're marketing labels, and like I don't I don't see why we should obsess over them as if they were like definitive. I don't know, genre or whatever, because, I mean, when you say shoujo, you think about the high school and the romances and whatever, but you have, I mean, I think this is something that where we should take into account what is translated and what isn't and what isn't brought here, because there are 
There are stories like Tokyo Crazy Paradise by the author of Skip Beat or Seven Seeds that recently had a Netflix anime or I don't know, a, a good bunch of stories that were writing like in the 70s and the 80s that are just really freaking weird. And they are shoujo, like they, Banana Fish is not an outlier in that sense. There's a lot of variety of j different genres. It's not just this this preconceived notion that like it's ro just romances. There are a variety of genres, uh, and so like there again, there is no restriction on like what a shoujo manga can be, and that is the same for like I think any story in any of these different genres, like the or not even any of these different demographic labels that are created for the purposes of marketing mainly to like what is the primary audience that we are selling this product to for the purposes of advertisers to know, okay, here's the audience. So here are what ads we're going to put in this magazine. They're like that's ultimately what demographics are for. Yeah, like they, they are there to sell. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think this, it's a very tiring conversation, but it's, it keeps being brought up in the context of series like Banana Fish, so it is worth having and expressing our thoughts on it, it's, it's, as uh, tiring as it can be. Mm -hmm. I, I do agree, but I also really want to move on from this conversation, because I'm also tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of uh, ideas that the author wanted to express to the audience, you know, uh, we mentioned before, uh, Marianne, like that scene in the in the bar where like, you know, uh, Max is groped and then like after in the aftermath of that Ash has this line, you know, uh, women have it worse. And I, there are a lot of moments like that. Uh, where Ash will will like mention you know sexual assault in that context, and there's also where a lot of moments in the story where Ash is you know very directly like railing against rape culture, calling out like uh, how the cruelty of sexual predators and the unfairness of it, and and you know and uh, one of the, in the interview I read where like she was uh, Yoshida was discussing like. Uh, uh, Midnight Cowboy being a uh, you know formative inspiration for her. She also did mention that uh, at that movie theater where she would watch Midnight Cowboy, you know there were like molesters there, and she you know apparently had ex had experiences being sexually assaulted. I feel you know reading the story and like this is just you know my perspective from what's in the text. I f I really do feel that one of the st most powerful like raw emotional ends of the story is Yoshida expressing, you know, her like thoughts like on uh, sexual assault, rape culture and like the damaging effect it has on its victims. And uh well, I I think one thing that has often been discussed in regards to BL series is how that they they substitute traditionally like female characters or or like problems that afflict like uh, women in real life with these male characters because it allows this sense of detachment and ability to like enjoy the story a story without like you know tr uh, like making it feel too real in a sense and that might be problematic in its own ways but I do feel like within banana fish you know with this story like that is definitely one theme and one topic that yoshida has a passionate interest in like exploring and like um expressing her anger at and i thought that was like a, a rare as 
really depressing as it would get at times. I think that is like a, it, it was a message that I found uh, compelling to read because of the rawness of it and because of the importance of it. I, I want to know what your perspective on that is in the story. The way I see it, I mean, Banana Fish has a lot of female characters and barely any female characters, but it's interesting because I think there's a lot of value in showing male victims because I think we as a society kind of forget they exist and men can be raped too. I mean, there's like this conception that men enjoy sex no matter what. And even when it's rape, they like enjoy it. And that's just such bullshit. And men can be victim too. Can be victim too, right? And it, but it also doesn't ignore the female experience because Ash himself is always aware. Like every time he casually mentions like how, how much people like harass him and whatever he's like you know i know exactly how women feel and it's so sad that that's like the one thing that makes him relate with women and he's aware of it and it's just so it's it it is really depressing yeah yeah it's it's raw it's it, it it really it does it is painful because of like all the pain that ash has endured you know one moment that sticks out to me is when jessica talks to ash about him being you know raped by colonel fox and like she was also a victim of rape earlier in the story and she talks to ash about it took me a long time to get over this like i I can't imagine like how you're feeling right now and like how you can stay so have your composure like this right now and ash replies you know if if i needed a year for every time that this happened to me you know i'd be dead of old age and that's just so heartbreaking because like ash for ash this is a this was a daily reality and like he was just he's just been forced to endure this like he can't have any time to really process this and recover from this because this is this he is subjected to like daily violence daily assault like this so he like in just in order to survive he has to like suppress the trauma and just keep just keep living just keep surviving and that to me was such a gut punch of a moment because of like what it says in the context of Ash's character, but also just like the daily lived experiences of so many victims of sexual assault and women in the real world, especially. Oh yeah. yeah like different people will obviously deal with, with pain differently, but Ash is someone who, because of the way his life is, has to like, force himself to get over things quickly and be on the move because he he can never stay still and i say force himself to get over it but he never really gets over it like it's inside of him eating him from the inside and it's his trauma shows up in his behavior and in some things he do and in even in things that he doesn't do and in like his reaction to some jokes he has with Eiji, you know, like when when Ash jokes and he and he I mean when Eiji says that like your eyelashes are really blonde and Ash is like and do you wanna see the hair down there or something? And then Eiji's like, Yeah, yeah and the reaction Ash has I mean that's not the reaction of like a normal 
person. I mean, they were joking, and suddenly he was just so put off, so out of his comfort zone. And then you have the way he he speaks about harassment with Max. He says it so casually, but like when in that scene when he talks about like um when he has dinner with Max and he talks about stealing money from Dino's account and he casually mentions that while Dino was raping him his mind was elsewhere and he used that sometimes to like hear things and memorize passwords and stuff and it just says a lot about how he deals by like what's the word it's like he it's like he's not really there like it's not really happening to him like he just it's like part of him just gets out and goes elsewhere he just like uh, i forgot the word there's a word for that anyway the way ash deals with things it's regrettably also there when fox abuses him like it gets to him right he I remember noticing in the anime, and I really noticed this because uh, it was predictably discouraged about this, and Ash is someone who has a lot of muscles, right? He is your typical 80s action hero. He has muscles, right? Um, in this scene in the anime, there's... The anime kind of like adds some scenes that make the, like, it makes the scenes like punch you more like it adds uh, a quick um close up of uh, of his pants that you can see that they have been pulled off that the manga doesn't have and it's it's so much anyway in the in the anime it shows he that he, the fox broke his shirt and he like and he opened his jeans and those are quick close-ups that are framed in a way that shows Ash hiding his eyes. His face is like in completely in the shadow and you see him exposed, right? And there were people who were saying that the point was watch seeing the muscles or whatever, which I think is a reductive view of this because to me what it shows is that Ash at the moment is exposed and it says a lot because Ash is always someone who gets on his feet, like, right away. And the fact that his eyes are hiding when all the anime, I mean, at all times, the anime use his eyes to express so many emotions. And in the way they shine, on the way they don't have any shine. I mean, it really tells you that there's something wrong in there. And then... There's a nest, uh, another shot that has Fox like sitting in the middle, and the framing makes it seem like Fox's body is dividing Ash into two because Ash is lying on the floor and Fox is in the middle. And on the wall, the anime does a lot of subtle details, and on the wall, there's a part of the wall that's bare and that it's broken, and this originates from Ash's body. And then when we are allowed into Ash's emotions again, is when he's like determined to fight again. Like that's when we are allowed to see his eyes again. And then in that scene where AG hides him, the wall again, it's broken and it originates from Ash's body. And those are like little touches that say, says a lot 
about what's going on inside, even if he is not saying anything. I mean, <laughs> the scene itself are really. I don't think there should be any reason for those scenes to be there because, again, Fox is absolutely unnecessary. But I, I, I found those choices very interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, that definitely sounds like some smart use of uh, visual shorthand and symbolism to convey meaning and power. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm definitely curious to see that when I get to that moment in the anime. But yeah, like just in general, like that moment where Fox rapes Ash, like that is like a rare moment where Ash is made vulnerable and loses composure in a way that he so rarely does in the rest of the story. And AG is the only one in that moment that, you know, knows what to do, knows how to comfort him. And like, so he, he hugs him. He is just this quiet moment of understanding, warmth and comfort. And which, um, which, which I think was pretty effective because like, I, for, I, I don't know if it's just me, but like, I didn't really even understand that what, what actually happened until like, until ag went in to hug him and then if you notice like you know you you can notice ash like trembling slightly too and you know it's those little details that i think really kind of helped me paint a picture of what had just happened because otherwise it 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 almost it almost went totally like over my head so right for the lack of positive sexual experience in the manga there is like positive physical contact experience between ash and Eiji, and that is a, a moment where you know ash you know reeling from like a traumatic physical assault uh is able to be comforted by Eiji offering just pure warmth and love and that can heal him Speaking of bodies and muscles and AG, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the naked body, the, <laughs> the naked body, it's obviously associated either with uh, vulnerability or appeal, sex appeal, if you have certain type of body. And Ash is someone who has a lot of muscles. And when I went over it and because I tried to like give the dissenting opinions like a serious thought. I went over it and I really look at how Ash's body was presented. I thought it was interesting because in that scene where it's revealed what happens to him, I will go as far as to say that the lighting and the shadows make it seem like, like, I mean, it tones down the muscles. It's like, I don't know, he looks hollow, his body looks hollow. And then there's another scene when Ash gets shot and Blanca is like, is like taking care of him and we see his stomach and we don't see the abs. So it, because he has like very noticeable abs in other scenes that, um, in that part, it's toned down too. But when Ash is being an 80s action hero in the mansion, he has like a six pack. <laughs> and his body, his muscles are very noticeable. And something that stood out to me is that the one other instance where Ash is like very, very tall, it's when he is like almost naked and A.G. has, I mean, A.G. tries to wake him up. This is in the anime. And it was super notable because it looked like he had an A-pad or something. <laughs> he was like like super ripped. And I thought it was curious that, I mean, 
the whole fact that Ash allows himself to actually sleep and be so exposed around AG says a lot, but the fact that the team in the anime felt comfortable with drawing Ash body in this way only when he's alone in private with Eiji also like really picked my attention. This is an episode 18, by the way. Mm. Yeah, that's like, again, very smart visual shorthand to just show like a distinct difference in Ash's emotional state. And I think that's that's very clever. And it really shows that there was a lot of attention uh, put into the anime on the character relationships and depicting that visually. Like the interiority of the characters, what they're feeling, and like having that expressed through body language, and in the case of Ash, like how his body is depicted. Yeah, there are a lot of little details that the anime has. Another thing that the anime does a lot with details is adding rainbows in certain scenes with Ash and Eiji. Like with Eiji Polesbound, there's the LGBT uh, flag on the wall. Sometimes it's on the sky, like in that scene when Ash asks Eiji to stay with him when they are looking over at the sun. The way things are present, it frames Eiji as being the sun, but there's also like a shot of Ash. It's a close-up of his face, and if you look at the background, there's a rainbow like over a building, I think. And I think they were like, I actually <laughs> had this compilated. I think there's like six rainbows or so. But uh, I thought that was a very interesting detail to add. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely loved the use of queer lighting in the anime uh, and what I noticed in the early episodes. And you wrote a great article about that as well that uh, I found a great read. And I would definitely encourage a lot of people to check that out too. But I, I want to also like now discuss uh, the Ash and AG relationship because I feel like you know for all the pain and banana fish that is, central relationship is the beating heart that drives the entire series. That is the emotional core. That is the uh, spring of hope that like the series goes back to. That is like meant to provide that catharsis, to meant to provide that emotional through line, and meant to uh, spur the growth of Ash and EGS characters throughout the story as well. And you know, I don't think there's anyone more passionate about that relationship than you, Marion. So I'm very interested in just your like overall thoughts on the Ash AG relationship in the story, and like just how that develops, and like just the core of that. I think one of the interesting things about Ash and AJ is that, again, there there are not many, many women in the story, but Ash and AJ both can fit into feminine roles. I mean, roles that traditionally go to women. Like, Ash, I mean, AJ is basically the superhero girlfriend. He's like he's like the one villains go to to kidnap or to hurt Ash constantly, and Ash has to deal with the whole people and demeaning him or overestimating him because he's too pretty, which is usually something women have to deal with more. And I also think that there are a lot of like 
classic romance tropes that are usually found in like heterosexual romances that are that can be applied to Ashenaye. Like that scene when Ash talks about uh, liking a girl when he was 14 and the, the context where, he, I mean, when he tells A.G. this is uh, he's about to send A.G. away because he's afraid that A.G. can get her. And he never really has the courage to tell him that, hey, I'm sending you away, right? But he ends up telling this story instead about what happened that time when he fell in, I mean, when he had romantic feelings towards someone and that someone did not end well. And to me, that read like so many romances where the dude is like, I'm so dangerous. I have hurt other women before and now I'm in love with you when I don't want to hurt you, which is not a trope. I'm a big fan. I'm, I especially like, but it, like, it's there, you know. And another thing that's interesting about Ashinaiki is that in in the manga, I mean in the story, they definitely can come off as an asexual romance, which I think has a lot of value as representation for people who identify that way. But I also think that you can read them as a relationship that can eventually go sexual. And in that aspect there's the Angel Eyes art book illustrations that have a lot of illustrations between Ash and Eiji that are just charged with sexual tension. So you have like you have both options in there. Definitely. And in the context of the story, I definitely think that I think that there's a lot of value in the in the fact that the Ash Eiji relationship wasn't sexually charged just because Ash was a, a victim of, you know, sexual abuse. That f the reason why he fought, like, you know, uh, one of the reasons why he grow forms a connection with Eiji is that Eiji, you know, is one of the few people who doesn't want anything from him, but also just sees him just as a normal person uh, and is not afraid of him or afraid of being honest with him. Uh, I mean, you can compare with, like, his relationship with Shorter, you know, his best friend, you know, before he meets Eiji, like, even in the in the backstory you read in Volume 19, like, Shorter is not necessarily, like, he does grow, they grow to become friends, but, like, that relationship can't become as intimate, because Shorter, Shorter as a character is, uh, you know, is, can, is bound to follow, like, rules of order like of his own organization and then of the rules of prison like when he encounters ash he tells him not to make ways and to just go along with basically being sexually assaulted just to not cause trouble and so that kind of forms an initial distrust between ash and shorter because obviously that's not what ash wants and shorter is not necessarily looking at what for what's best with ash which is like what works best for this institution system uh, but like with a with Ash and Eiji, like Eiji will never never wants Ash to do something he doesn't want to do. Eiji is always looking out for Ash's happiness first and foremost, and 
again, like he uh, he's honest with him. That's what allows Ash to just be like a kid around him and interact around him like normally. Like that's what eBay notices. Like in in very early on the manga, where like he observes like you know Ash and AJ, like Ash teaching you to hold a gun and the way that they're interacting. And like Ash is chipper. He's happy. He's laughing. The moment he sees eBay, though, you know he grows stern and cold because people like eBay, like a lot of people in Ash's life. They see him in relationship to something else. They don't see him for him. Like, eBay, you know, came to do the report uh, on Ash, like, as the the gang, one of the, a youth gang leader in New York City. Uh, a lot of other characters see Ash in relationship to what he can do. Like, oh, he's a super awesome gang leader. Uh, he's the super, he's skilled badass. He's so smart and intelligent. Like, they, they see him for, like, his... His for characteristics, but not as a person, not as not as for his feelings for not, and they're not interested in that. But Ag is interested in that, and so that is why they are able to form that intimate connection. That is why Ash kind of grows to become uh, dependent on Ag for, for because he's Ag is becomes the only person like he can actually like relate and vent like his his feelings towards like vulnerable feelings that he can't express to anyone else because he has to stay guarded or professional around them yeah like ag ag is his rock mm-hmm. definitely with shorter he shorter i think his fate already tells you everything like even if he will want to like throw everything for ash he can't do it because he has a sister like his sister life can be on the line like every time so he he really has his hand tied so that's the thing with shorter and ash and eiji are simultaneously a couple of dumb boys and a very <laughs> and a very merry old couple like the way they <laughs> interact they are simultaneously like dumb teenagers being dumb teenagers, but the way they bicker sometimes, they they sound like an all married couple who are just like very comfortable with each other and like you know you know when they make fun of each other they don't mean it like they they do it fondly. Yeah, they can joke around with each other. They can flip each other off, like insult each other's cooking or their taste in food. Like, again, they can form a relationship where they are allowed to just be genuine with each other in a way they can't be genuine about themselves to other people. And I think that's just, I, I think that's one aspect of it that makes the relationship stand out and like makes it so compelling. And I, I don't necessarily like that as the story goes on, characters will point to their relationship and say, oh, that is a weakness that you have A.G. around because he is making you soft. Uh, he is uh, someone that you you will not allow be, uh, be able to escape if you have him around because he is he, he is someone that they can use against you. There's all sorts... I, I, really want this wanted the series to challenge that and for most of the series it seemed that you know that emotional connection between them it just gave ash more strength like one of the moments in the manga where ash kind of loses the will to live essentially is like when he you know has he surrenders himself to golzine because blanca comes into the picture and will assassinate ag if he you know does not return to golzine and like just do his bidding and like ash basically becomes uh anorexic he he loses the desire to eat and becomes sickly he just has, has loses all the passion in life but then 
you know, he sees AG come to rescue him, and suddenly he gets up on his feet, and he's still weak from hunger. He's still, like, not, he's has suffered, you know, like, physically because of this hunger strike, but he, like, goes in the action upon seeing Eiji, and that brings him back to his old self again and just causes him to recover. But so Ash, so Eiji is, like, really something that Ash starts living for, a person that that gives Ash hope and inspiration to keep living, keep fighting, and, you know, pursue that freedom. Uh, and I think that's so compelling throughout the manga, and it's just such a shame that in the end, that Yoshida completely undermines that by having, you know, Ash's letter, uh, letter to Ash be a moment where he drops down his guard and gets him killed. Like that sucks <sighs> so much. Don't even get me started there. <laughs> yeah, it sucks uh, so much, man. Yeah, Ag definitely humanizes Ash because. We, as human beings, need love to live. We all need love. And A.G. is such a source of love for Ash. In, in, a, in I mean, Ash Water is nothing but cruel to him. And A.G. is everything that's warm and everything that's, that's like right in the water for Ash. And that's a source of, I mean, that's what, at some point, it keeps him human. Like, there's a part mm-hmm. when... I mean, before Arthur, when they are, I mean, before that climatic fight with Arthur, when they are like killing the rebel guns that are on Arthur's side, and Ash starts to like lose himself, and Ag is the one who likes throws him back, the one who calls him out, like this is not like you, you wouldn't do this to like, I mean, you are not the kind of person who will hurt something who's innocent. I mean, there's a there's a huge difference. Between like Ash reacting to the worst kind of people who just want to make the worst kind of thing to him, and he actively going out and murdering and start to murder other teenagers for like the threat that they could be, and th- that's where Ag like puts a stop to it. Like Ag becomes like his conscience and like helps Ash like really want to give up this life of taking lives and like this eye for an eye idea and like they're gonna kill me so i have to kill them and i feel like that is a a huge point that ultimately makes ash you know uh uh towards the end of the manga seeing challenges ash to a you know life or death duel you know because some conspirators uh wait way long have uh, tried to assassinate him and Ag, and so Singh wants to take responsibility in that. But like ultimately, Ash, you know, this says they're going to let it go because there's no point in continuing that violence. You know, uh, it's that's he, he's ready to leave that life behind, and so I think that's like a huge moment, like in his journey, like the the ability to let go uh, as well from that pursuit of revenge, from that life of violence, thanks to Ag's influence. And, like, him helping Ash realize that this is not the life he wants to be entrenched in. And and help him, being an example of a person Ash can, like, aspire to be. And being an example, uh, an inspiration for, like, giving him an inspiration for a life he wants to live. I really found that really inspiring. But I also really, I also really like just the contrast in, like, Ash's emotional journey and his pursuit of revenge to that of Waylong. 
uh, and also a mirror counterpart in Blanca. I, I like, I like, I like way long as a as an antagonist. I really joins throughout the manga as like this counterbalance. They have very similar circumstances in the sense that they are have been exploited since childhood, victims of you know a horrific tragedy and sexual assault and stuff. And but whereas you know uh, Ash has aging in his life to like kind of encourage him inspire him to see pursue freedom and a better life and escape from you know the criminal life like way long you know he is he's he's so entrenched in pain he doesn't really have at least he doesn't think he has an aging his life and that's why he's so resentful he sees the influence ag has on ash and like how that is motivating him to escape and he he hates that he wants to bring back ash to like that to his worst elements that he sees as his best elements the violence the uh the cruelty and because he thinks that you know they can't people like him and ash can't escape from the trauma and pain they have to be trapped in this life and so i love that like when blanca confronts him about this when blanca's finally like i can't go along with this anymore uh i you know i'm going to go help ash and like wayland kind of just breaks down and also like kind of admits like why he has throughout the story been so persistent in trying to kill ag and like you know blanca tells uh Weilang, you know be kind to yourself kinder to yourself sir and then ultimately you know sing confronts Weilang and tells him you know you don't need to, to do this you know you can let it go and like Singh also uh, you know is becomes basically the uh the the ag to uh Weilong's ash in the sense that Singh is a person it's not as intimate as the ash ag relationship but Singh becomes a friend that Weilong can like uh rely upon and then can you know help him grow emotionally as a person and move on and let go of the pain the the trauma the i pursuit of revenge that has driven him like the anger the spite and like help him uh, grow a little bit emotionally and i like that comfort i like the phone call uh in garden light where the implication is that you know Singh is uh talking to way long over the phone it shows that you know they've still kept in contact They've still been like you know good good friends who are concerned about each other. So I I enjoy that relationship a lot and how it uh, it developed and how it contrasted Ash and Adri throughout the the story. I also really like Blanca, you know, again as a mirror counterpart to Ash, you know, as someone who also was like a child soldier for the KGB, uh, who was also in this life of violence. But he met someone he loved and who loved him, and so he was encouraged to leave that life. But because he also lost that person in the process and, you know, kind of had to, like, become... That caused him to be a little distant emotionally. But then seeing, you know, how A.G. has, like, dramatically changed Ash and given him, like, the ability to escape. Like, that ultimately convinces Blanca's mind and makes him, like, remember, like, his feelings of love. And then that's why he ultimately helps, like... Ag, I mean Ash, at the end of the day, like escape from that life. He he gives up his contract with Waylong and goes to his side. Like I really like Blanca's role in the story as this mentor figure slash adult counterpart, like someone who has lived the experiences uh, Ash did and has experienced, but experienced the tragedy of losing the person he loves, and then like now seeing himself in Ash and then wanting to have a happier ending for Ash, even. 
Again, the manga itself does not give that to us, but, you know, I, yeah, there, are, there are good thematic parallels between these characters that I really enjoyed through this manga. I thought it was really good with that. Most part. Uh, can, can, can you know? Can we? Can we? Can we talk about the ending? I feel like we're getting to that point in the show where we need to talk about it because I, I, I have some feelings. Yeah. So I want to just start off by saying when I initially read the chapter in of itself and did not read the rest of volume, I hadn't read the rest of volume yet. But like my initial reaction to just reading the sequence of events was like, huh. Is there is there supposed to be a degree of ambiguity here? Because we've seen Ash survive worse than this. Surely he can't. He won't just die from loud. Maybe there's this idea of ambiguity to the ending. What Ash like smiling, looking at Ag's letter, and like so maybe maybe it's this like uh, leading off on this. Like maybe they will see it again, or maybe Ash died. But he died happy because he had Adrian's life, you know, there's, but it's ambiguous, so you can take it both ways. But then you read Garden Alive, you're like, oh, no, Ash did die, and now A.G. is forever haunted by, like, his love of Ash and the fact he'll never be able to see him again, and ten years later, he's not been able to move on. It's only ten years later that he's even been able to look at pictures of Ash, but for the rest of his life, he'll never learn to love again or get over Ash. That fucking sucks, man. That's that's not romantic. (laughs) That's not romantic at all. That's not... I think the idea of that from Yoshida's perspective is that she she might have thought that was like a romantic ending. Oh, Ash will always have Eiji's heart in that, but that sucks. No, that's that's cruel. That's I, that sucks. I, I, people I, I, are I living with depression, trauma forever. <laughs> guilt that that the person he loved died and might be because of his letter. It sucks. That, that's terrible. That's not a good message for a story that is about that has been for eight, over eighteen volumes. A story about Ash trying to escape and find a better life. Like, what does that say for uh, real life victims that they cannot find their happiness? Uh, it's uh, it's lucky that you have Waylug in the story. You know, as someone who does survive that, but it's not like he escapes the criminal element. Like the point of Ash's story is that he was supposed to escape that life and live his best life. I don't want to. I don't want to like. I mean, Jedlung doesn't really, really survive because I mean, Yoshida has other series that are in the same world that Banana Fish and in. Yasha, it has seen as one of the characters, and in that manga, Jodlung dies, by oh, the way. So, great. not even, not even Jodlung get, gets away. Oh my god. Damn it. No, it's just, it's such a bad ending. Like, it's not even a case where, oh no, the sad gays suck, but the teens are there. No, it undermines so many freaking things. So many freaking teams like you have max telling us you know what this is bullshit you don't have to be hound by this you are more than this you can live after this and he burns the pictures i love that moment the, yeah, of, that of Ash. it's such a great moment and then you have ag the person who loves ash the most the person who has always see, seen ash as just the boy he is telling him you know what Get away with this Hemingway Emma bullshit. You are a human being. You're not a looper. You're not an animal. The destinies are, your destiny is like not up there in the stars. We can make choices, you know. And then you have that 
freaking ending. It just like, why would you even bother doing all this, all these uplifting things with for victims and then have Ash die like that as if his life? I mean, he spends the whole manga fighting for a chance to live. Like that's it. All he wants was a chance to live and be free, and he never gets that chance. It's just such a it's such a horrible message to survivors like it's like your life doesn't matter if you have been abused like you are damaged goods like the only way you can be saved is like through death like there's no other way like the fact that ash is happy with dying like that i have so many freaking issues with that like happiness in death for a young boy who has never had a chance to live and who has been abused through whole his whole life like can you see how wrong that is like what yeah that's a bad message yeah i i i was not a fan of this ending either you know i i i would have even been fine with like i don't know like i i would have even been fine with like a lady snowblood kind of ending where it's like you spend your entire well not his entire life but you spend a good portion of your life trying to get revenge against the people who have wronged you and whatnot and I think if certain things were tweaked, I think I would have been okay with uh with somebody Ash had to kill because he had no choice coming like I, I would have been okay with like one of Ash's choices coming back to kind of bite him in the end. Like I think I I think I personally could have been okay with that kind of ending. And I think that's what I think that's what the series is trying to go for with having that with having uh what's his name? Yao? Lao. Yeah, thank you. Lao, uh, with Lao with, with Lao going manga. to kill him. I hate how he sucks yeah, uh, because he's so annoying. Well, see, he's like, well, oh, well, see I don't my my thing Ash, is I I think I think it would have been honestly I think it would have made more sense for if if again if things were tweaked I think I think it would have made more sense for maybe Sing to come after him at some point maybe but 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 that like then you would have to change I think you would have to rework his entire arc though you would like it wouldn't <laughs> make sense with where. Like, the story had left off Ash and Singh's relationship the way it had developed. It's, uh, it's been the last couple of volumes of the story. Like, they trust each other. They don't have beef with each other. Like, there's no reason for for them to want to kill each other. That's why they don't have that fight to the death. But, like, Lau is, an, Lau is an, such an annoying character. Personally, I, I'm not okay with Ash dying, like, period. Because, look... You have all sorts of people in this manga doing all sorts of terrible things. Even the good guys, like everyone and their mothers has killed someone here. I said AG, but <laughs> everyone has killed even Jessica like appeared for two seconds at the end and to like kill someone and say Max and whatever. And they never face any consequences for it. Like yeah. nope. Ash is the only one here who ever even thinks about the fact that he has been forced to kill people and he even feels guilty about the fact that he's like so detached from it that it gets to him and you know when you have this kind of story it's not really about whether or not your action hero kills people because these are not really considered people these are faceless nameless henchmen and two-dimensional villains and like pure evil so in, in these cases it's about what's in the heart of the person and not so much in the actions. And the fact that 
Ash laments having to do these things is a testament to the goodness in his heart. But he's the only one that gets punished for it. Like you have Jessica and Singh who has killed you and they go on and have second chances and they get their romances and their, I mean, their heterosexual romances and their traditional families and Ash and AG get absolutely screwed over. And I think that not only it's like, I mean, it speaks to the conservative and like heteronormativity of the time, but it also undermines the themes of new fam families in the manga because you have a lot of, a lot of children here that have been failed by adults and the system and they have to like rely on each other and take matters into their own hands. And the fact that at the end this seems to say that what really is valuable here is like the intersexual family, like the traditional family really undermines that. Like Ash is the only one who gets killed and AG lives forever traumatized and destroyed by this. And I mean, it's just hard not to think about it like just a traditional sad gay ending of the era. And I say it like very generalizing because there's even movies in the, in the 80s that have like good hopeful ending. My Beautiful Laundry has a good ending for the gay couple and Banana Fish references that movie in one illustration, by the way. And... The fact that Ash is a survivor changed everything for me. This is not your average action hero who does like bad things and then has to pay for it. This is a survivor from rape and human trafficking who's killing some fuckers that are pedophiles and like I am so fucking angry. <laughs> I get so worked up when I think about this. <laughs> Thank you, Yoshida. This is someone who survives some of the worst things that can happen and he's getting back as some of the worst people that can exist. And the fact that he has to pay for it, it's just so wrong. And yeah, I don't really it's pretty think unfair, you can, yeah. yeah. Like you can divorce Ash Dead from his status as a survivor and I think one of the values in Ash Carter even is the fact that he works as a power fantasy for women, for people who have been abused, I mean, who have been from any form of abuse, like Ash is overpowered, but it doesn't matter because he needs to be overpowered to deal with the huge pile of shit that, he's deal that he has to deal with. Yeah, like where's the catharsis in having... This character who is meant to be a power fantasy and meant to be someone who you can latch onto if you have been like a victim of trauma and abuse to like live up with your fantasies of escape and having that character die. That really sends a bad message and it's just disheartening. Between that and like not even getting the final shot on Golzine, Golzine basically just takes himself out after uh, like after taking out Fox, like between both of those, like. Yeah. I, yeah, I, needless to say, I wasn't very happy with this ending for Banana Fish. I, I got kind of pissed because, uh, um, I went into the last volume not, like, I had no idea, because, because volume 19 is basically, yeah, just that last chapter of Banana Fish, and then the, the extra bonus material with 
basically shorter and Ash's backstory of how they met each other and then basically the 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 final like real epilogue chapter um I'm which I'm assuming came later and when I sat down to read volume 19 I was really really surprised at like you know how it, it like without that epilogue chapter because I I feel like the one good thing to come out of this ending because the 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 thing that came to mind for me at first was well, does AG know? Like, are we just are we ever are we just not going to find out like how he feels about this? Like, I th- I think I think if we didn't get that perspective, I I would hate this ending even more. Like, I man, I'm I'm glad we got that last epilogue chapter because it it I don't know. Like, I I, I kind of like. I mean, obviously AG is obviously very heartbroken about Ash dying, and that's really sad, and I I feel sorry for him, but like. You know, I'm I'm just glad we even got any kind of epilogue after uh, like at all because like man, I can't imagine being a fan of Banana Fish and keeping up with this in its in its magazine releases and reading that final chapter and being like, what the fuck? That's it? Like, what happens after that? <laughs> I'm not. I hated that epilogue chapter. Personally, I would kind of prefer like I don't know these open. I mean. Th- if he just end there, you kind of like cool thing. Okay, but maybe he does survive this. Maybe yeah, like, there's that's a not degree the of you know? and you know, and in the the epilogue, I mean, in Garden of like, I feel like it's like such. I mean, it's misery. It shows it shows you Ag being so punished for daring to love someone like that's it all he ever did was loving us and he fucking paid for it and i just i just can't see anything to like about garden of like like the whole time i was reading i was like so so pissed like why would you do this to ag like what did he ever do to you he's such a nice boy why would you do this to him (laughs) yeah it's like garden of light makes it so that none of the characters who have suffered in this manga have a happy ending like they're all trapped all the survivors are trapped by guilt over what happened to ash and can't move on from him. and ag especially is haunted by his death and has never moved on he sees a look like an ash like on the street and he goes running up to him and it's like he's he's forever trapped in this and even with the small bit of development he gets and like finally being able to look at his pictures it's still not grok he's still not able to let go move on with his life he's still it's the implication is that he's still forever going to be chasing the memory of ash and trapped in those memories and it sucks it's not it's it's cruel for a what did ag do to deserve like such a torturous life yeah, and the fact that he sees random blonde people on the street and he runs to them and grabs them as if he could see Ash again, it tells you that there's a part of him that still expects Ash to come back. And why will you do that to him? That's too mean. That's really mean. But like, I, like, I so much would have preferred if there was no uh, epilogue chapter and there's no word of God from Yoshida that said Ashes that I would have so much preferred if the last chapter was published that is and had that ambiguous ending because I read an interview excerpt where Yoshida said that she had a Shiden no Joe in mind when she was writing this ending. 
And so, like, I can definitely see that in this ending. Like, the, especially this just this idea that at least the final shot of Ash is just him smiling, sleeping and smiling. It's not like that Ash is dead. So, like, the ending, the ending of Ashina no Joe, like, it's often misconstrued that at the end of Ashina no Joe, Joe dies. That's not the ending of Ashina no Joe. That's not how you're supposed to interpret it. Like, it is supposed to be this ambiguous ending. Like, the point of the ending of Ashina no Joe, why we see him slumped over that chair, smiling, that shot of him, is, like, Joe has just fought the best match of his life. He's overcome so much hardship, pain, and, to, and, and endured to get here. And he did not win the match against Jose Mendoza, but he had the moral victory. Like, he gave the world champ a match... Oh, that he had never experienced before, like one of the best matches in history, his best match in history, his best uh, boxing in history. He gave everything he had, and he is. We you see him slumped over the chair, satisfied with that. You know, like there's all this build up in the story that makes you that leads you to believe. Oh, did is Joe dead at the end of the manga, but it's not supposed to be the point. In fact, like, the alternate ending of Ashina no Joe, like, one of the original intended endings, is that the final shot of Joe, you just see him, like, on a porch, and he's, like, like looking out, and, and like, Yoko Shiraki's, like, smiling at him, and, like, that's, you know, there's, like, it's the end, the original, like, the, one of the original endings is that Joe lives, and, like, the, the, the ending that everyone knows it for, that is, the ending is still not that Joe dies. The ending is that the point of the story is that Joe, who was like an orphan kid who had to struggle all his life and who had worked his way up from the slums, from the bottom, to become one of the greatest boxers in the world, to compete in the world championship. You know, the point was that he succeeded. He achieved the happiness he wanted. He lived his best life. That's what the ending of Banana Fish could have been. The point could have been, like, we had this degree of ambiguity of whether Ash would survive, but the point could have been Ash lived his best life and he met Eiji, he's given hope-driven purpose to live for the future, and if you just left the final shot as is, like, you could, you don't have to interpret it as that Ash is dying, because again, we've seen Ash suffer so much worse before, we have, the person who is saying Ash won't survive this is so unreliable and no shit, Lao, we're supposed to trust Lao's word on this, the guy who doesn't know anything? Screw Lao. So you, if you had just left the ending as is and did not have Garden of Life, you could have had that meaning. It could have had like this significance, and there could have been value in the ambiguity. And that is totally destroyed by Garden of Life, and it just makes the ending cruel. Uh, I don't know. I I feel like I disagree in that. I'm. I don't know. I I I think in this case specifically, I think the ambiguity would have just pissed me off more. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, but that 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 is just me. <laughs> I mean, it's just choosing your battles. I will come prefer to be pissed like that than to be pissed after witnessing what happened to Ag. Like I'm more yeah. pissed now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree. Well, either way, this sucks. All right, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I remember like reading somewhere that and Yoshida really liked the concept of dying after your soulmate goes away and that Ash is happy because because the fact that he's dead means that Eiji is his forever 
And that's just so fuck it. Like, come on. This is such a healthy, wholesome relationship. Why will you ruin it like this? Yeah, that, that taints what was otherwise a positive relationship because it makes it possessive. That in that age, Ash has possessed Aji's heart and will keep him from being able to move on from the heartbreak and pain. That's, that is cruel. That is not uh, romantic or satisfying in any way. Yeah, and Ash will never. Like, this is someone who was willing to kill himself without a second thought just to keep Aegis safe. And why will he, like, choose to be the one who hurts Aegis the most? Like, come yeah, on. Yeah, it makes no sense for Ash to do that at all. Like, he has a letter that literally tells him, I want to see you again, come with me. And he chooses, I mean, he just die? Like, come on, wh what is going on here? And I have seen I have seen takes where I like where I like the point is that Ag save Ash soul or whatever, but that's not enough. That's not enough. That like there's still he never had a chance to live yet. He it, it doesn't erase all the negativity that comes from this. And I, I think there's also like this is like just the icing on the top. There's such a bad editorial decision because when you pick up volume 19, you open and you are received by an illustration of Ash and Eiji naked in bed, right? And then you read the chapter and it's just Ash dying. Yeah, I, th I thought that was weird. Yeah, I have seen people on Twitter being like, I hate that illustration because I thought that meant they were end that they will end together and then the ending happened and it's just such... And this is like, you can say this is a reach or something. This is something that just came to me when I was thinking about the barrier gaze business that went on in this show, The Hundred, you know, when they kill Lexa. I don't know if you, if you all hear about it, but you know, barrier gaze, it's basically when you have like two people that are like, they have a chance to be happy. Sometimes they even have sex, and then afterwards, one of them is killed. And that evokes imagery from the barrier gaze drop, like Ash and Eiji in that intimate moment, and then Ash goes running to Eiji to a chance to be with Eiji, and that's when he gets stabbed, and that's when he dies. Like, come on. Yeah, like, it, from what I understand, Yoshida had it in mind from the beginning that Ash would die, and I don't. I think she fell into this trap that I feel a lot of writers do is that they have this destination in mind, but the story evolves in ways where the destination they plan doesn't make sense anymore, but they refuse to change what the destination is. Yeah, I can. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, it's like, like with Game of Thrones recently. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Like in Midnight Cowboy, which is the movie that she, that she mentions that having a huge impact on her i mean i feel like she watched midnight cowboy and whatever she saw on that ending impact her so much that she wanted to recreate that in her own world whatever it takes yeah but it, it just didn't work with the story she was telling i don't think she she fully grasped like in a sense, the responsibility of like telling a story about a survivor trying to escape to a better life and then ending it the way they did, ending it with tragedy, and then just laying on more pain by having the debt of that person in incur more tragedy for the p p people who loved him. 
Like it, it was, I don't think it was a well taught out message at all. And apparently like there was, at some point she was, she did consider an ending where like Ash would survive. And the ending was, would just be, you know, they sur- uh, survive. It's not necessarily that Ash and Angie would have gone together, but like, I, I so would have preferred that an ending where Ash survives and has a chance to live his best life. And I really am sad that she stuck to her guns in this case. And, did the ending she hadn't planned to do but it, in this case i don't think that was the correct decision for the story yeah like i think may letting ash live and finally had the chance like you don't even have to get specific just give him that chance to live it will have made banana fish so much more powerful and it will have aged a lot better like it will have sent a better message and it would have validated her teams of newfound family and not having to be defined by tragedy and the bad things that happens to you and you know it, it was just it would have just been so much better in this case i'm not even calling for a happily ever after because obviously it would have been rough for him but that's no reason to kill him <laughs> yeah like obviously he would still have to you know live with the trauma and live with like all the the experiences he's had and maybe even some feelings of guilt but the point could be like he can learn to grow and like again live his best life like he does not have to suffer for the situation he was put in where he had, he had no control over the situation he's put in he was a victim he should be allowed to find happiness yeah, even th- that last scene with AJ and the cops, the cops themselves are, are like, Ash is a victim here. Like, when they, when they ask uh, AJ where Ash is, like, we, we don't want, when they are like, we don't want to hurt Ash, we just, we're like, he's just a victim, we want to help him. And like, how, you know, where, how, I don't know, tone deaf you have to be to put that scene just before uh, and you kill him. Because, uh, God damn it, I'm so tired of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Banana Fish is a series that it, it definitely leaves a lot of complicated feelings, but I think it is incredibly fascinating just because of how much is going on in it just in terms of just what's in the text and also the metatextual perspective of the influences Yoshida's pulling strong and like the cultural political climate of the time that influenced it like it's a really it really is a fascinating series and i definitely have in the while reading and spent a lot of time thinking about it i did like i wanted to do a lot of research and prep for this uh podcast and <laughs> i didn't even get to address on all the notes i had taken uh, I had a lot of stuff on the, the history, political stuff at the time that but we don't need to go into. But again, I think they're, Banana Fish is a dense text that I think is deserving of like uh, a classic says it was deserving of like analysis and appreciation, even if it is such a frustrating read at times. I think there's still so much there is to value. I mean, not just from the historical perspective, from the emotional perspective. I did... For the most, I did until the ending truly get enjoy the Ash AG relationship. I find Ash an incredibly compelling and fascinating character that you know I really love exploring and seeing him develop throughout the story. I found so many of the characters really compelling and lovable and interesting. Like there's so much to love in Banana Fish, and I think that's the reason why the story has endured in spite of all of its the frustrating elements, in spite of that ending. Yeah, and I think 
also another strain this has is that it leaves a lot of blank spaces for you. And some people walk away talking about the political element, and some walk away talking about like the war and the military. And if you have previous knowledge of this, I feel like that really informs the way you see the manga and the way you enjoy it. Like, personally, I see Banana Fish as kind of like a Jake of all trades, master of none, because uh, I don't think like the political conspiracy can be like the, the biggest takeaway or the huge, um, or like the, the best part of it. Uh, and I know people who are really into politics and bring all their knowledge into it and project and see connections with real life, even if they were not intentional. And they do walk away thinking that's like the strongest part of it. And like the way fans feel in the, about Banana Fish and the way they think away from it are just so very so different and that also reaffirms like its status as having a crossover appeal i think um, even visually in the manga like is it doesn't make a lot of effort for to like manipulate your emotions like it leaves things open especially with characters like Yudlum, for example like we could talk about Yudlum for for days and days because he is a mystery and the manga never tries to like direct your thoughts in any direction like it lets him be a complete mystery yeah and i think that's what makes uh a, a, the mark of a great piece of art is that you can there are so many different aspects to a piece to the work that you can appreciate and latch on to and fall in love with and banana fish definitely has so many different elements to it that you know, bring gives it such that broad appeal and allows for uh, such you know passionate study and also passionate appreciation for, which you know to me like banana fish the it ha definitely inspired in me like a definite uh, passion to learn more about it in a way that you know few series do so i i do so like for me that's the mark of a spe really special series is like that that like i that made me want to go through all this uh research to learn as much as i could about it uh for the purposes of this podcast but also you know i've <laughs> i had trouble like sleeping last night because i was just thinking about like all the things i was gonna say today like thinking about the story how i felt about it like the things I was thinking about, so you know, I banana fish. You know, uh, I guess in the same way that uh, Ash has captured like Ag's heart and mind, like a banana fish definitely has done the same way uh, for me. It's definitely a story I think I'm going to keep thinking about, and uh, I'm definitely curious, you know, to continue to engage with it both critically and now as just as a fan as well. So I'm really glad to have finally read this series. And I guess uh, I, ju I just am wondering from uh, you, the rest, you, rest of you guys, and, and just in general, what would you say is, I guess, the chief value of Banana Fish? You know, the thing that you latch onto the story and you got the most out of. Uh, and do you think that Banana Fish, you know, it's definitely a story of its time, but do you think that it still has just as much power uh, today for new readers, for people coming into it? And then what, how would you recommend the series, uh, to other people? Like, what would you say to them, uh, if they were interested in reading the series? Yeah, for me, 
I mean, I remember before the anime premiere, I think it was on the website that people ask questions to random people like, do you know what banana fish and what do you remember from it? And everyone, everyone answered like, Ash, Ash is the best thing, Ash, Ash. <laughs> and even when people mentioned Eiji, it was like what Eiji did to Ash, you know, it was Ash. All ash. And I personally think the most enduring quality of Banana Fish is definitely in the protagonist, in the main character, in Ash, that like there's just so many things that Ash represents, so many things that Ash can be. And it's the and, and it's in the heart of Banana Fish that's his relationship with with Eiji. Because now let's suppose Eiji was a girl. Suppose this was a story, I mean, everything is just like that, but Ash fell in love with a girl. Suddenly, the story would have been so different. And to me, it would have just crashed and burned because it will become like an irony of being saved by straight love. Like, to me, like, there's definitely, I mean, Ash and AG is definitely a big part of what makes Banana Fish endure. The, I mean, the heart of banana fish is definitely what makes, what makes it endure. And that doesn't mean the plot doesn't matter. I mean, it's definitely an engrossing plot and there's a lot you can say about it. And there's definitely a lot you can say about the anime choices as well and how the anime adds to the story visually, like all those little details. Like I mentioned, Yulung being a mystery and the anime as the detail of his eyes being purple and purple is the color of mystery and when we have like these close-ups he has these purple eyes you know how they say that the eyes are the like the window to the soul and when when we when we talk to people we say like look into my eyes and tell when we want them to be honest because we feel like if we look into their eyes we can see like the through or whatever and Yulun has purple eyes, and that's like a way of the anime reaffirms that he is a complete mystery and we can just access into what's in his heart. And I will say that the one thing that makes Banana Fish so great is the human element, because all that plot, it's nothing without all those characters to love, without the lovable, uh, the lovable guns, without Max relationship with Ash that that's like a surrogate father for him like the one father figure he the one adult he can trust like all the teams that work on I mean the that you can get away from the human element those are the things that to me make banana fish endure and stay with you because I don't know about y'all but personally if I don't like the characters if I don't connect with anyone uh, and a story will hardly stay with me, even if it's like incredibly good. Oh, definitely. So to me, that's why banana. I mean, is the the fact that it's so engrossing and the fact that it has such. I mean, and there's such a high quality in the, the human element. That's what makes banana fish like really capture you. I feel. Um. I guess just to kind of go off of that, um, personally, I, I thought Banana Fish was enjoyable overall. Again, a lot of caveats everywhere. Uh, a lot of, uh, I guess you could call them problematic. Problematic. I'll say that again. <laughs> um, 
a lot of problematic elements here and there um, that unfortunately haven't aged well. But, uh, you know, there's a lot in here that I thought was really interesting. Like, I I really want to thank Marion for uh, for bringing this up late uh, earlier on the show, because this was something I was going to bring up was, uh, again, the exploration of sexual assault and rape culture through the eyes of a male character, um, which is it's, it's something I don't feel like I see in a lot of media. Not, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist in media, because I'm sure maybe there are other stories I just haven't seen for myself, but it's a viewpoint I don't come across very often at all, but when I do, I... I really appreciate it because it's like we were saying earlier, you know, um, men are just as capable of being victims as anyone. And I think that's a really important viewpoint to uh, to showcase every once in a while. Um, so I I really appreciated that aspect of Banana Fish in particular, uh, kind of looking back on it. And, uh, and, you know, there are certain like, not to get too political, but like very, very like, um, I, how, how do I say it? Like, uh very like uh basic political aspects that i think are are very uh relatable in our modern society whether it be just how fucking disgusting the rich can be and you know how unfortunately you know if you have enough money you can just kind of do whatever and uh you know those kinds of things are i think are are universal thankfully when it comes to storytelling and uh you know, I think are very uh, relatable to a lot of people, especially currently, I think. Um, just a lot of that kind of stuff that I think has only aged well with time. Um, and just a lot of just a lot of that kind of stuff I really appreciated. But uh, I also agree that it's it really is the human element of Banana Fish that really kept me that really kept me reading. Uh, otherwise, a lot of the stuff I a lot of the stuff I mentioned wouldn't wouldn't mean as much i guess um and i i i would say overall it's it's definitely worth a read no matter how many caveats we give it like it's very much worth your time and thankfully at the time of this recording like i i was wondering i was wondering whether it would be possible you know by the time we recorded this but uh it's now not only has it been reprinted in print uh but it's also all available digitally too so now um, more people have access to it, which is good. Yeah, and and since you mentioned like the rich and the powerful and how they manipulate our lives, and I think there are a lot of elements in that sense that are just unfortunately timeless. Yeah, which is why I was like never too concerned about banana fish not taking place in the 80s like I mean there are definitely things that work better and have more context if it is in the 80s but like the story doesn't fall apart if you bring it over to like 2018 like there's a lot in there that just unfortunately still applies Mm -hmm, for sure yeah the characters at the center of it the heart of the center of it that's timeless and I think that's a, a good note to I guess wrap up the the podcast and our discussion of banana fish. I we covered a lot of ground, even though I'm sure there's more ground to cover with this series. But I think that's why, like, it's great. That I think that you know there's continue to be more discourse and analysis of the series. One thing I do want to mention before wrapping it up is something that I really really appreciate is the character design in the anime that's so diverse and so 
so humane. Like I know it's a low bar, <laughs> but it's a low bar that unfortunately a lot of media just doesn't cover. Mm-hmm. Like, like we mentioned, there's a lot of interesting things that banana fish does, like politically. But to me, the fact that banana fish indulge in anti-black caricatures yeah. just really, really undermines a lot of its points. And I just really, really like like the fact that I can watch the anime and black people look like actual people and they are light and in the way that takes like that that takes attention to their skin tone I I really appreciate that and I like honestly I don't care if you said this story in 2030 again as long as you keep giving me that good shit thank you yeah that made a lot of really good modernization choices and that was one that i was very thankful to see uh as much as i like kane as a character especially i think the character is great like yeah I, it's very uh it wasn't great seeing these sambo caricatures of banana fish so i really appreciate the revamped character designs in the anime but yeah i mean that's what i think is great about uh revisiting and uh reinterpreting readapting uh material from the past is that there's always room to uh like where you can improve on it where you can take a piece of art that someone has made and then kind of add your own ideas to it and then modernize it for uh, a new audience I, you know, there are definitely some ways that the the banana fish an- anime probably could even gone a step further, especially in regards to the ending. But I think just overall, that was it's a really superbly made, intelligently made uh, st- uh, piece of art that, like, you know, takes the sort the best elements of the source material and smooths out some of the edges and uh, just makes it. It just brings out the best parts of the story. But, Marion, I will want to thank you for coming on the show and talking Banana Fish with us. Like, uh, we're, you know, again, this is a series that, you know, uh, we, uh, I was really keen to talk about and go, like, really in-depth on it. And, you know, there was no better person to talk about it with. So, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm close to moving on. But then again, I, I there's, like, always so many things <laughs> I can say about it. And I just really, really love what this story... I mean, I'm really thankful that this story created Ashinaji because they just give me endless content just thinking about them. <laughs> yeah. It's like that meme that I've seen going around lately. A smiling, just thinking about X. And, like, uh, definitely with Banafish, like, smiling, just thinking about Ag. Like, these, these <laughs> characters give, just give you joy to think about. <laughs> Again, I really love the character designs in the anime. Like, there's so much going on with the way Eiji is designed in Lon. He's such a good boy. I love him. <laughs> oh, Eiji is so adorable in the in the anime. Like, uh, there are some really cute expressions with him. That it really brings out the innocence in his design. It's a natural cuteness. Like it's not like the the kind of like kawaii we are used in anime. That's over the top and like she's sweet. It's a natural time of cuteness with Ag that makes sense in the context of the story, and it just, it just sets him apart from the cruel world of banana fish. Like just this incredibly adorable, strong human being. He's so good. Yeah, it really comes across in his characterization, his personality. And yeah, 
Like, there's a lot to love about AG. Uh, but, you know, for more thoughts on Ash and AG, more like daily, you know, picks of uh, eight, eight Ash and AG, uh, just, just more discussion of not just Banana Fish, but other like uh, series that you're really passionate about. Like, where can people find you, like, on social media and read up on stuff you've written about? Uh, you know, so, like, where can people find you? Um, on Twitter. My handle is eccentric Marian, and like that's where I am. Like that's that's all my stuff, my links, and all out of my profile. And yep, yeah, that's it. once again to Miriam for coming on the show and sharing her insights into Banana Fish. This was a series that I was really glad to have read and thanks once again to our listeners for choosing it in our survey earlier this year. I'm really glad we finally got a chance to read it and I'm glad to have finally covered another shoujo series on the show and another BL series on the show. And uh, yeah, so... I think now we'll go into some community shoutouts, and the first community shoutout I think I want to give is Marion, and check out her blog, Otako She Wrote. Uh, she has a lot of pieces on Banana Fish, several which we mentioned during the episode, and they're great companion pieces to uh, reading the series or watching the series, because she goes into some great character analysis, some great analysis of the filmmaking in the show in particular and color choices shot choices so that was very fascinating to like uh reference as i was watching the anime and as i was reading the manga but i also want to reference uh, some of marion's freelance article work that she's done uh, outside of her own blog including a piece she wrote recently on another classic shoujo title for anime feminist a piece about Rose of Versailles titled Every Rose Has Its Thorns, vilifying female ambition in the Rose of Versailles, where she goes and analyzes how Rose of Versailles vilifies characters, female characters who have ambitions of power, like Jean and Madame Dubarey, contrasting them with more sympathetic uh, female characters in Rose of Versailles, like Rosalie or even Mary Antoinette, how those are characters who are also, you know, very strong in their own right, but because they don't have ambitions of power necessarily, the show frames them as more morally right than characters like John, who, like, dreams of power and schemes to be in a position of power. And Mary does a great job, like, picking apart... Like how the show is very unfair in its vilification of women who pursue power when it is much more leaning towards like men in the series who are just as despicable. So this is a really good piece on the Rose of Versailles and I just wanted to reference that. But yeah, again, check out Marion's work on her blog, her YouTube channel, all her pieces on anime feminist. She does great stuff. Mm-hmm, for sure. I actually have a podcast as well that I want to talk about for my community shout out. Uh, and that is the Kawaii Five O podcast hosted by uh, Lisa and Alex. Uh, Lisa in particular is uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I've talked about her on, on the show before, but uh, I kind of put her in the same category as I do grant where if you're not following her on Twitter, like you really should be because Lisa in general is just a really funny comedian who also happens to be an anime fan 
And um, I think you can still see a clip of her stand-up pinned to her Twitter account. And uh, I think she's the only comedian I've ever seen who's been able to, like, incorporate anime into her stand-up uh, and actually, like, make it work and make it kind of funny. I don't know. Just, just in general, Lisa, I think, is a very funny person who who I really enjoy seeing post online and I also enjoy interacting with. Uh, I've also podcast with her uh, here and there on stuff like Life Lessons or whatnot. But yeah, so she's cool. And then um, her friend Alex is also pretty cool as well from uh, what I've heard on the Kawaii Five O podcast. Um, I think he in particular is like a newer anime fan because he's only seen like less than a handful of shows. So it's really interesting to kind of get his takes on the anime he watches, uh, not just that, but also like the community as well. I don't know. So I, I always enjoy like a fresher perspective on anime and the community and whatnot. So I always enjoy uh, listening to what he has to say. But uh, Kawaii Five O in general is another anime podcast that uh, they basically just started up. Um, I think it's Lisa's first podcast. I know she's done like guest spots before but this is her first time actually hosting a podcast um and I'm, I'm about five episodes in and i have to say i think they've been doing a really good job um i really enjoy uh listening to both lisa and alex kind of work off of each other and discuss uh, all kinds of different topics such as like you know how they feel about different like uh shonen anime uh who are their favorite like main characters are uh their favorite like anime movies and whatnot. Uh, they even play like little games at the end that I think are pretty creative and fun. In, in general, Kawaii Five O just is basically just listening to conversations between Lisa and Alex about anime, and uh, that's that's really that's really all you need, I think. Like I I think their show is fun, and they really make it a point to be as like in inclusive as possible. Uh, they're very against like the gatekeeping that kind of goes on not not just not just in the anime community, but like. In, really in any like fandom in in general like you're, you're never gonna not see them in any fandom unfortunately but uh they really make it a point to kind of like fight against that and i i really appreciate that about their show in particular so yeah they're they're very active about like engaging with their listenership and uh you know the, those are the kind of shows that i can really get behind um but anyway yeah if anybody's like interested in listening to the show uh I think they're basically available on, like, wherever you download podcasts. I know they're on Apple. Uh, I think they're on Spotify, Podbean, really wherever you can find podcasts. Uh, and I know they have a Twitter account as well, which you could follow, at Kawaii50. Uh, that's the actual spelling of the word five and then zero. So Kawaii50. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we'll we'll obviously leave a link to uh, that show in the show notes. And uh, I hope everybody gives uh, gives it a listen and enjoys. Again, uh, like I said, if you're not following Lisa in particular, you should. I guess I might as well let people know where you can like follow her as well, because uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Wisa Wallen. That's a little confusing, but I think that's kind of the joke. Uh, which uh, I think that's spelled uh, W I S A L A L L E N. Uh, and I think you can also follow Alex at the Funny Pence. Um, so go follow both of them, really. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty much it for my community shout-out. Mm-hmm. Definitely need to give that a listen uh, myself. I love Lisa's comedy, and her new podcast sounds like a real fun time. Mm-hmm, for sure, for sure. Um, but I think that is about it for community shout-outs. And, uh, 
Yeah, I I think overall this was a really good episode. Uh, I don't know about next episode at this point. Either we're going to cover news or we're going to talk about something. It's kind of up in the air at this point, but... You know, and I, I don't want to. I don't want to say anything at this point because I don't want to accidentally be wrong about the next episode. Well, one thing you can be sure about is that on the next episode we will talk about manga. That's true. That this is very true. That is that is the one. The one consistent guarantee you will always <laughs> get with this show. Yeah, it's pretty much. Yeah, I mean, if we can guarantee anything, we will talk about manga. Um. But yeah, I think uh, I think that's a good note to end the show on. Uh, Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at LumRomiyasha on Twitter and at LumRomiyasha on a variety of places like Animation Revelation, Annie Lift, Riveters of LumRomiyasha. That's where you can find me. You can read my reviews of manga, anime, movies, and all sorts of stuff on all-comment.com as well as find my other podcast, hashtag LumSquad, which... Well, we'll continue eventually if it hasn't already. All right. Uh, definitely go follow all of their stuff uh, as well as my stuff, too. I'm Colton. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. And this would normally be the part where I plug all my stuff. But you know what? The best place where you could find all of my podcasts or at least links to all my other podcasts is at uh, my personal blog at ColtonCorner.wordpress.com. Um, haven't made much use of it at this point. I think I have like one thing written on there. Um, it, it's just, it's just kind of a place for basically if I have an idea about something I actually want to write about, that's basically where it will go. Um, but for now I have a section of the blog where basically you can find links to all my podcasts, including life lessons, one podcast prevails, uh, the poltergeist report, uh, and just so much more. Um, if you're interested in listening to any of my other stuff, uh, that's where you can find it. Again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. And um, I guess as for the Manga Mavericks podcast, uh, you can find every episode of the podcast first over at uh, all-comic.com unless you are a patron and you are subscribed to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Um, if you sign up for our $2 tier, uh, you will not only get our thanks, but uh, you'll also get certain podcasts early, depending on uh, when we have those edited. And also at the $5 tier, uh, you'll, you will get at least one bonus podcast every month. Uh, we definitely have some cool podcasts coming down the pipeline that we are working very hard behind the scenes on. Uh, but for now, if you subscribe to our $5 tier, uh, I think at this moment we have a lot of different interesting at movies episodes on there, uh, even an episode of manga fights, uh, and even our uh, review of that time I got reincarnated as Yamcha. A lot, lot of cool, interesting stuff. Again, that you can only listen to if you're a Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/MangaMavericks. Um, but as for the podcast, you can also follow All Comic on Facebook.com/slash/All.Comic or on Twitter.com/slash/AllComic underscore. Uh, but if you want to follow Manga Maverick specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter uh, at Manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr.com at MangaMavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, you can also listen to us on pr pretty much everywhere, including Spotify and whatnot. Uh, you know what, if you have anything you want to email us about, like, uh, you know, what are you reading? Uh, what did you think about our banana fish discussion this episode? Uh, do you, do you have any other manga titles you want to hear us talk about on the show? Uh, email us anything about manga or the podcast and we'll read it on the show. Uh, you can email us at manga mavericks at gmail.com. 
Uh, but the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that really helps the visibility of our show. And I just realized I forgot to mention our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, please, it, uh, let's not forget about that. Definitely go subscribe to us on there. Uh, we have a lot of different content on there, sometimes even exclusive content. But uh, I think that's going to be about it for the show. Uh, again, I hope you guys enjoyed it. This has been episode 98 of Manga Mavericks, and we will see you guys next time for episode 99. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.